Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and today we are here to discuss 2007's 1408, an adaptation of the short story featured in Everything's Eventual, which we recently covered in an absolutely epic two-part book episode. Today, however, it's all about the movies. Uh, So 1408, directed by Mikhail Hofstrom. And uh, it stars John Cusack. Oh, how we miss you, John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, Let's go around and introduce ourselves. Mike, say hello and tell me, uh, what is your 1408 movie history? Did you see it in theaters? Well, I did. Uh, This is Michael Enslin Rothman. I figured uh, that seemed to be pretty easy and lazy to do. But uh, honestly, I can't remember where I saw this, though, because... It's probably in Fort Lauderdale, but um, I had just finished my undergrad studies at FSU, and so I was kind of back home from school, and it honestly felt like, you know, with the last summer, that felt like a summer, you know, in the old school vein, like, oh, school's over, I'm back home, and it was really like the last summer I was back at home, so I probably saw this with my brother um, right when I got back. Um, and I remember enjoying it, but I was, I remember not being like heavily affected by it. I kind of just like, I thought it was more great to see Cusack again. Like I, you know, I'm a huge John Cusack fan and, um, you know, I think I probably walked out being like, man, you still got it. So good job, JC. But I, I actually hadn't revisited this movie until 2018. It was during a pretty rough time, uh, you know, getting out of a marriage. So, um, it's kind of weird how this film has seemingly existed in these like transitional moments of my life. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to just exploring uh, this room, this movie uh, at a time when it's, uh, you know, I'm on steadier footing, so to speak. So excited. So you're a big fan of the story because we discussed in Everything's Eventual. We all rated it number one. Yes, uh, we did. Spoiler yeah. alert for our Everything's Eventual episode, which came out <laughs> last week. Um, so uh, yeah, like what do you like about the story? For me, it was just the sort of cerebral nature of it all. Like for me, like the stuff that you can't necessarily define, but yet you, you know, have at least a sort of, um, I don't know, pragmatic understanding of what is coming across. That's some of my favorite horror. I mean, that's kind of why, you know, why I love David Lynch movies in a way. It's like, you know, you can't really define some of the stuff that's going on, but it's stuff that gets under your skin. And that short story it just rattled me. I mean, I talked about it in the episode. It's just, it's, I think it's one of King's scariest stories to date. Um, I think that, you know, we'll probably, you know, break down the, the ways that this movie pulls from it, but also ways that it probably could never pull from it. So, um, yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan of the, the short story. So, I mean, it's, it rocketed up my like top 10, top five, even, uh, short stories in King's collection for sure. So final question. Have you ever stayed in a haunted hotel? 
I have um, multiple. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not as a, I'm not of a seasoned veteran like Ashley Cassidy, uh, who was on our episode. Um, but I last year we, uh, my girlfriend Sammy Kuykendall, uh, we went to a bed and breakfast in Wisconsin. Uh, this place called the Brumder Mansion, and uh, it was a bed and breakfast, and it was kind of funny. It was similar to like the opening of 1408 here, where. We were coming in, we were going to see last podcast on the left and actually going to go meet some friends. And the person that owns the place was like walking us through the entire mansion. And we really had to go, like we had to drop our stuff off and go meet our, you know, um, our friend for dinner before the show. But he was just walking. He was like, well, this is uh, the foyer and, uh, you know, uh, a long time ago. And and I, and me and personally, I was kind of digging it up and I'm always trying to be the, the person that's gonna be like, you know, nice and placate and, and whatnot. But I could tell like Sammy was just like, look, we got to get fucking going. Um, and I, but I was eating it up. And I will say that night when we came back, um, having some of the stories echo on our head of, you know, all those different hauntings there, we went down to the basement, which is, um, it was, um, it was a, a speakeasy where Al Ca- it was one of many speakeasies that Al Capone had. And, they told us all these wild stories about how a lot of people that went down there seen like figures and whatnot. And we went down there and it's now like this makeshift community theater. So they have a stage and everything. And I kind of, it felt like that, uh, that moment in the shining, uh, when, uh, Halloran is in the attic and he just feels something watching him. Like I was down there and I was like, all right, I want to go upstairs. And I'm usually pretty good. I, like, I don't care about like, I, I, I want to go to these places. I'm, I was saying last night, I'm probably Mike Enslin in the sense that I would absolutely go to 1408 despite Olin's, uh, you know, attempts to dissuade me and whatnot. So to have that feeling of like, all right, I want to go upstairs. I, I don't know if anything was there, but it, it certainly was enough to get me creeped out. So, yeah. Um, and you, you know. very much believe in ghosts. I have, and um, I, you want to go listen to a Souls Midnight if you want. We go have to many Patreon. Souls Midnight episodes you can listen to. Uh, Jen, say hello and tell us your 1408 history. Hello, this is Jen to the Rage Adams. Mike, I have a question. Did you lock your door from the inside when you were in the hotel? Because that's the only safe way. Well, <laughs> so the we only did. way to lock a door. Also. Well, we, I did because I didn't want some like weirdos uh, staying right. next door coming into our room at night. You yeah. know, I'm They're more haunted I'm, by drunk people. <laughs> well, I'm just more scared of the freaks that go to the places like me. No, I'm just joking. Um, but I am a freak. Um, but yeah. we're all freaks. That's why yeah. we're awesome. Um, yeah, I I talked in our episode on um, everything's eventual about how much I love this story. It's one of my favorites. I think it's his scariest. I've listened. I think this is probably my favorite piece of audio fiction also like I've listened to the story probably 20 times at least um and I remember watching the movie I think I went to see it in theaters with friends who were not really constant readers and I was deep into my well actually in the book it's like blah 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 so I (laughs) probably was a little more dismissive of the movie than I would be if I saw it for the first time now because it is very different there are a lot of um things which I think is fine. Like I now watching it now, I actually enjoy a lot of the differences and I think they work really well, but I think that's my experience with it. The first time I watched it, I remember there were a couple of moments that really scared me. I thought it was a lot scarier than I was expecting, but I think I was probably like, yeah, but it's not like the story. So, you know, have you ever (laughs) stayed in a haunted hotel? Um, I, I don't, 
no, I don't want to know because I'm I'm terrified. Like <laughs> every time I go to stay in a hotel and I'm going out of town in two days. So I am not going to tempt fate there. Also, when I come to Chicago, I'm staying in the Wicker Wicker park which is where the wicker man lives right like, yeah that's, he's, that's he just saunters around up and down you know north avenue um it's like oh i miss earwax cafe i'm gonna burn down the whole restaurant uh no. just singing really loud yeah yeah um well awesome uh and our next guest i'm very excited to introduce him there's kind of a whole story behind it but before i get into that i'm gonna let him introduce himself and and just tell our listeners um a little bit, Josh, about who you are, what you do, and um, and then I'm gonna and then I'm gonna tell the story. So so kick it off, Josh. Introduce yourself. Uh, my name is uh, Josh. My brother was eaten by wolves on the Connecticut Turnpike, Zagorin. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, this is uh, I, I uh, I'm an actor of a voice actor in in Chicago, uh, and I do a character called Chad the Bird. Uh, a lot at uh, the Green Mill out here. He's on TikTok a bunch. Plug, plug, plug. And um, yeah, a writer, actor, voice actor in, in Chicago. Yeah. So Josh is is somebody who I knew in the Chicago theater scene. He's he's I saw him in many plays and then I've seen him do storytelling events as Chad the Bird. He's great. I'd call him kind of a local celeb. I think yeah. I'd give you that that distinction. I appreciate that. The money I would say otherwise. But yeah, I appreciate that. Man, endorsements we have a, are coming. We have a podcast. We we know what it's like to not make mm-hmm. money. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So basically, you have a podcast as well. Do you still? Do. Is that yeah? Chad the Bird uh, has a podcast. Uh, yeah, and, uh, Chad the Birdcast is what it's called, and you can find yes. that anywhere. And I was on that podcast around the time it was probably like maybe four or five, six months after we started the Losers Club. And you talk, we talked then about how much you love 1408. And I laughed because at the, and the thing was at that time, the pace we were moving, I was like, oh, we'll probably get to 1408 in like, I don't know, <laughs> this is 2017. I was probably like 2019 maybe or so. Oh, man, and then now yeah. it's 2022 and we're finally getting there. So yeah. So, uh, so I was like, I will definitely, and you told me, what you told me was that you don't just love 1408, that you said it is your favorite horror movie ever, which was, to me, like, shook me to the core, because I don't think I'd ever heard anyone say that before. And I like 1408, <laughs> but it, to me, was uh, was definitely a surprising reveal. So I was like, well, I absolutely am going to have you on the podcast. And I have carried that with me for five years now. And I've always said when we get to it, I'm bringing Josh on. So he really now has. you are yeah. here. Yes. Now you are here. And um, so I am fulfilling that promise. But... So, so I think we're all really excited to hear, uh, five years later, is it still your favorite horror movie? And, uh, but before you answer that, tell us kind of your history with the story and with the movie. Um, okay. So, um, yes, just cause I'm a big Stephen, I'm a constant reader, big time fan of uncle Stevie, read everything, read all of his books, listened to all his podcasts. I'm a freak for it. Uh, and my mother, when I was a kid, would pull me out of school when a movie, like a Stephen King movie, would come out, and we, she would call the office and say that I had a dentist appointment. Oh my god! And we would you go had the and, coolest wow. mom. Sure. My mom, Gail Zagorin, all the way across the board. Uh, she's a saint. Uh, but we would go see. Um, I remember distinctly uh, when the dark half came out. Uh, we went to go see that in the afternoon while I was in school. Um, and uh, and I was a kid, like, because I'm 41 now, so I must have been what 10, maybe 11, maybe mm-hmm. when that came out. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Yeah. So yeah, no, it wasn't just like uh, you know, we it was yeah. So she knew what she was doing, 
1408 came around. I saw the movie first. I had the audiobook but hadn't listened to it, and I thought I would do the opposite and see the movie and then listen to it. And, um, well, the rest is history. Uh, I saw it in a theater in Boston with my good friend Danny, uh, who's another Stephen King head. And I remember him. He's about six six five, and he's a big dude, pendulette size, and screamed. <laughs> screamed. High-pitched scream <laughs> several times during that movie. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the, the, the easygoing history is that I saw it. I loved it. It stuck with me. We'll get into it, I'm assuring you. But in answer to your question, yes, it is still my favorite horror movie. <laughs> nice. Uh, and nice. I, I, I am a horror snob. It's the only thing in my life I feel like I can be snobby about. Like, I understand why wine connoisseurs are the way they are now <laughs> because of horror films. Uh, because I'm like, oh, I mean, it smacks of James Wan, but I'm not sure he's really <laughs> nailing the scares. Um, but just cause I'm a junkie for it. And after all these years, I feel like I can finally be snobby about it. And, um, yeah, even after hereditary, this is still my top, my ride or die is this movie. I love it. Nice. Well, cool. We're going to talk more about Fortuna Wade as we go. Um, my brief history, uh, is, is nothing too special. I saw it in a mall, uh, when I was in college in a mall theater on a Friday night, the night it came out, I was so excited. This was kind of in a drought for Stephen King movie adaptations. When this came out, there weren't really a ton of them out there. And I remember thinking it's, this is kind of like the black phone situation with Joe Hill, where it feels like original IP mainly Mm -hmm. because it's not as well known of a story, even though it is technically IP, but it's not like another it remake. So 1408 has always had this weird distinction of being, um, I don't know, like all like something of a novelty of a King adaptation because it it's it's not it doesn't have any like uh, iconic monsters or anything along those lines. And it wasn't it it isn't one of those titles that everybody associates with King because it was buried in, you know, uh, in a short story collection. So so I remember really loving it. And then I. Uh, you know, I hadn't really revisited. I think I'd watched it once maybe in the intervening years. And then I just rewatched it two nights ago, which was really fun to do. And man, that that green lighting that they or that green filter they put over everything in movies around that time. <laughs> like, I was like, man, that's taken me back. So, um, so yeah, uh, it's it, but the thing was, I had never read the story even when I saw the movie. So I just read the story for the first time when we did our Everything's Eventual episode. And like Mike said, it's in my top five favorite Stephen King stories. It's uh, short stories. It's absolutely amazing. So um, so yeah, it's it's my history is not like this was never like a seminal movie for me, but it's one that I've always appreciated. And it's one that I love to when people want like, I don't know, esoteric Stephen King information. I always tell them. 1408 is literally the fourth highest grossing Stephen King movie, yeah. which is crazy. Really? It's, it's fucking crazy. It's yeah. it, it chapter two, the green mile, and then uh, uh, 1408, which is wild. So this movie wow. was a massive success uh, when it came out, which I think speaks to, I don't know, like people were desperate for horror around that time. I remember I was, there really wasn't a lot of horror um, that was in theaters around that time, or at least good horror or stuff that felt, you know, somewhat original. I feel like, we were heavy in sequelitis around that time. Uh, so it yeah, was, but, it, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a weird time. I was thinking about it because we we've discussed a couple of movies uh, from 07 on uh, Halloweenies also, and I usually chart around like what's going on with horror at that time. And it seems as if like 07 was really like the end of like, or at least maybe like the peak of the the feverish 
highs of like the remake phenomenon where it was just like mm-hmm. all right well, we're gonna keep doing it like platinum dunes was still cranking them out and then, you know we kind of were in this like fatigued era where we're like all right what the fuck are we gonna do now like you know we got the torture porn shit that's already kind of dying out uh, because you know, saw or or ratcheting up because that's when Inside came out, and that movie still freaks me out and is that's disgusting. That's true. That one. I, I that fucking there. love Inside. Ugh, that movie's <laughs> intense. Yeah, and it's it, it, it's just a weird transitional moment for for horror, I think. And I think that it's interesting that King comes back around this time too, because if you think about it, this is also the same year that The Mist comes out. Yeah, and yeah. you know, prior to this, you know, we had some miniseries adaptations that were, you know, that dropped, and I think it was what like Dreamcatcher before this, and then also and Dreamcatcher was like two thousand and three. No, it was two thousand. It was oh three, and then before that, you get like Hearts in Atlantis, and so it's very, you know, it's interesting that King would come back, but then you look back after this, and it's like, well, they didn't really capitalize on this year, no. which is interesting. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it was wasn't. Like a, uh, a brief period of time there where like they because of like Shawshank they just wanted to do the really like dramatic king stuff it was like, yeah. Yeah. like like the schmaltz yeah yeah let's do the let's do the really like um the the deep introspective king without the monsters where the fear is really of man and you're yeah. like that's not why i'm here but okay that sounds <laughs> yeah. nice absolutely yeah, it's like they relegated all the the sort of ec comics king or the horror king to like miniseries, yeah. Like that's where mm-hmm. it was. It was or like directed video stuff, which is interesting. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting that that would. Well, happen. and I feel like that's what's coming back now. Which I know I'm into you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, what's also interesting, Mike, is the history of this movie. Uh, so we're going to unpack it in a section we call the Dairy Public Library. Mike Allen, if you see. Hey, excuse me, sir. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do. Well, you better let the poor guy out. Yo, Mike Hanlon, did I have to go? Did I have to get cleaned up? Tell him. Tell him. Tell him I'll see him tonight. Get out. Last chance, don't you? Get out. Get out. Excuse me, man. Here in the Dairy Public Library, we break down the history, uh, the background, some interesting tidbits about the movie on hand. Before you get into it, Mike, uh, or I don't know, should I read the reviews now or do you just want to, do you want me to get the reviews done with and then you can barrel into the history or do you want me to do the reviews after? Let's go the reviews after just so we have a, we, we, you know, we, we create a base. Okay, you know? cool. Let's get, let's create a base. I'll do, I'll do a rundown of production history real quick. All right. Um, all right. Build the base. So, so as uh, Randall mentioned earlier, directed by Mikhail Hafstrom. Nostrum. Screenplay by Matt Greenberg, Scott Alexander, Larry Kurzeski. I fucked that up. Uh, produced by <laughs> Lorenzo de Bonaventura. Cinematography by Benoit Del Home. And uh, it was released on June 22nd, 2007. And it had a budget of $25 million and managed to ratchet up $133 million. It was distributed by those wonderful folks at the Weinstein Company. (laughs) In addition to- Early scare. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Uh, But it was also uh, distributed by MGM, uh, who who knows Cy Bond, uh, James Bond, the the secret agent we all love uh, and endure. And it was also the production company's Dimension Films and Bonavent- D. Bonaventura Pictures. That's going to be a name that we're going to want to cling on to for a second. So here's the timeline. 
1999, Blood and Smoke. That's when uh, 1408 first appeared as an audio, an audio form. And then it was obviously, uh, you know, recommingled into Everything's Eventual by 2002. Why do you know this? Well, as Randall mentioned, two episodes dedicated to it in our feed. Get there. So <laughs> in November of 2003, 2004, Dimension Films optioned the rights to the short story. And they hired Matt Greenberg to adapt the story into a screenplay. Now, at the time, Matt Greenberg had ties to King's Dominion, sort of. Uh, he did uncredited revisions to Children of the Corn 3, <laughs> Urban Harvest, which you can hear us go all into in a Lobstrosities episode, which we've locked away into our Patreon, patreon.com slash the Barons. Uh, spoiler alert, at least where we are in the chronological release of corn movies, the best of the three. So how about that? Um, yeah, we're due for another corn love. We are. We got to go to corn can. four and see if this 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 progress of greatness <laughs> is going to swell. Oh, please uh, have me on for a children of the corn. Oh, oh we yes. will. Oh, oh we will. God. Especially since we know your pedigree for King now. This is uh, it's pretty intense. Uh, sidebar, I love the idea. I, I, I'm just picturing you in like 1993 when the dark half came out and you're like, your, da- your mom's like, hey, why don't we go to Jurassic Park? And you're like, no, I want to yeah. go to George Romero's The Dark House. <laughs> oh, no, she wanted me to. No, you have to understand, mm-hmm. Gail was all about Stephen King. She's the reason why she- I even read the stuff, because she had, every time uh, a book would come out, she would she'd be would be on this shelf. And at one point, when I was in elementary school, because I read it when I was in sixth grade, Holy she shit. put yeah. all of the Stephen King books she owned in a safe. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you need to start reading other books. And so wow. I had to earn my way back into Jesus. that that safe. So yes. Nice. Oh, there's yeah. No, she she remains top echelon of King fans in my opinion. <laughs> That's awesome. You gotta get her on. Yeah, oh, seriously. If, if she's around, hey mom. No, I'm just kidding. She's not. <laughs> should have, we should have mother mother uh, like a Mother's Day episode. It's just oh, her that'd so like, be amazing. Oh, uh, my, uh, mine. If I brought mine on, let's just say the episode would go off the rails in about three minutes. But uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I would want to talk on, about Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. my mom would talk about Dean Koontz. She was a Koontz head, not a King. Oh, yeah. oh God, we have. Well, a, a she can help us spearhead the Koontz cast. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, let's uh, right, our long so, fabled Koontz cast. Yeah, right. Oh, man, God. we'll do Phantoms, and that's it. I'll come on. Hey. For that. I know Phantoms is actually not that bad. It's been <laughs> no, on TV bad. a bunch. You get a you get a weird performance by Leave. Schrieber, uh, <laughs> that's our next yeah. psychoanalysis episode. Actually. Oh, really? Is oh, that episode awesome. 101? With, yeah, 101 with Ashley Cassidy, actually. Oh, awesome. Ooh, so, yeah. awesome. Lots of Kings. It's King's Dominion. Uh, <laughs> well, speaking of King's Dominion, get me back <laughs> on track there. Matt Greenberg. Uh, so I mentioned Urban Harvest. Well, let's just say he had some other ones. His, uh, his big break was co-writing H2O 20 years <gasps> later with Robert Zappia. Best Halloween uh, movie. It's a it's a fun Sorry. one with uh, my boy Josh Harnett. And then after that, he does 2002's Reign of Fire, uh, which I I would imagine if you ask Christian Bale about that movie, he'd probably like give you a death stare. But uh, yeah. anyway, um, <laughs> he then would later, and you'd like this, uh, Jen. He adapted Grandma, Grandma, ooh, with uh, the movie Mercy that stars uh, I don't know the little uh, Rick's kid from Walking Dead. <laughs> that movie. <laughs> I was I was on maternity leave when that movie dropped. I was so excited in that movie. I feel like it punched me in the face by how bad it is. It's a bad movie, and we had it low. And I think we did a ranking on our Patreon of just like what were the, the adaptations, and everyone had that as the the worst one. But anyway, yeah, sorry. I, he he eventually continued that greatness by doing the um he he made a he readapted Pet Cemetery. 
which is Randall's favorite uh, remake uh, to, Oof, from 2019. Not a fan of that one. <laughs> but what's important about that is that the producer on, on this film, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, he also handled uh, Pet Cemetery. In, in fact, uh, Dan Caffrey spoke to him at South by Southwest in 2019. Um, anyway, in October, 20, uh, in October 2005, Mikhail Hafstrom was hired to direct 1408. So Hafstrom is a Swedish filmmaker. Uh, he turned heads in 2003 with Evil, which is not a horror movie. It's a drama uh, that managed to nab him an Oscar nomination for Best Foreign Film in 2004. Wow. And he followed that up with uh, Clive Owen and Jennifer Aniston's Derailed, which in a way uh, kind of derailed his career a little bit. But uh, um, So by 2007, I think he's kind of uh, in the same seat that the director of uh, The Dark Tower was. Uh, I can't remember his name anymore. Do you remember his name, Randall? Like, oh, um, oh, it's like on the tip of my tongue. Um, well, exactly. That, that is like yeah. that. See, that's a perfect example, though. So it's like I feel like he kind of was like, all right, well, I, I have this prestige behind me what am i gonna do let's just say it turned out better for uh Hafstrom here so he's on but they also dimension films also tap screenwriters scott alexander and the name i fucked up before and i'll probably fuck up again larry karazuski karazuski and i actually wanted to bring bring him on the podcast to, to do an interview so i'm sure he's gonna listen to this and be like fuck these guys <laughs> um anyway these two have the wildest fucking resume i've ever seen at least in a few years. So here's here's the rundown there. 1990, Problem Child with your favorite mm. director, Dennis Dugan. Oh, right. I love Dugan and I love Problem Child. Love Dugan. But then guess what? They're a year later, like, we're staying in the Problem Child business. They do Problem Child 2. Why wouldn't they stay in the business? I know. It's a well, huge hit. They have a reason why they wouldn't stay in there for, for, <laughs> for Problem 3. Because uh, their problems came to an end in 1994 when Tim Burton tapped them to adapt or to write the, the screenplay for Ed Wood, which... Oh, shit. I love Ed Wood. Ed Wood is amazing. So... I'm it, loving that yeah. you're going down this IMDb, because I was doing my... I did my deep dive this morning, because I was going to be on this podcast, and I'm just, like, yeah. nodding aggressively, like, oh, yeah! Oh, yeah! Get ready! <laughs> it's amazing. Like, I, I so so they they follow up Ed Wood with The People versus Larry Flint. There it is. Which is pretty good. Miller's Foreman like, movie. Yeah. It's pretty great. They got nominated for a Golden Globe on that one. Um, then... <laughs> they do the screenplay for 1997's That Darn Cat. <laughs> like, what? What? Was that so, with Lindsay Lohan? Uh, I think uh, it's the one with Christina Ricci. Yeah, it's uh, Ricci. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So their then, resume is like being on one of those old haunted house rides yeah. at like a carnival <laughs> where you're just, you're hitting your head against the wall constantly. Like, it's like, it, mm-hmm. There's so much whiplash. It is. Oh my God. I'm like wild. looking ahead to this list and I am. I, it, it, Mike, you were right. It's going places I wasn't expecting. It's ridiculous. I know, so then you couldn't possibly predict where this ends up. So <laughs> then they go two two years later. They go back on the Foreman train and do Man on the Moon, which makes sense because it's kind of in the same vein of Larry Flint and also a little bit of Ed Wood. And then a year <laughs> later, you think, okay, they're on the right track again. Nope. For the next three years, they do. 2000 screwed with uh, the late <laughs> Norm McDonald, McDonald, which I had that on DVD thanks to Walmart. Um, <laughs> not a great movie. I remember getting so excited for that because I love Dirty Work. Right. Randall and I are huge scholars of Dirty Work. Yeah, I'm and a big Dirty Head. Not a good movie, but still fine. Dave Chappelle's in it, and I believe Danny DeVito. It's fucking DeVito. wild. So then they follow that up, which, to be fair, this is a co-write with Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stentz. 
Agent Cody Banks, which my girlfriend swears by, but let's be honest. That's <laughs> okay, not- I have to jump in really quick because one of the funniest things that I've ever seen in my life was in college. Yeah. I was uh, driving to the movies and we were driving past the entrance and we saw one of our professors walking out of the movie theater with his son and our window was down. And I said, and he was this big, gruff, like deep gravel voice kind of guy. And, uh, but he was with his little kid. And then um, we were like, hey, Steve, what'd you see? And he just goes, Agent Cody Banks. <laughs> and it was one of just my favorite things I've ever heard. That so you Frankie Muniz is a real master of his craft. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, Frankie Muniz, what happened to him? I feel like we follow Oh, his social, Twitter account we? is one of the best follows. Yeah, it really yeah. is. It's good stuff. He has, he has a tweet. He's like, I, I had a dream I got shot. And then he's like, he's like, and then he goes, when I woke up, I could still feel feel the burn from the bullets. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it is one of the best tweets I've ever seen. Every time it resurfaces on my account, I retweet it. So life is unfair. Um, <laughs> but to be fair, it wasn't unfair for these screenwriters because they landed 1408 and uh did some co-writing here. And um We'll read the. I mean, we don't need to reread the. Re- well, do you, should we read the rest of what they do after fourteen oh eight? Because it's kind of up and down. Also, yes. it's pretty fucking wild. All right, so then they go back. They stay on the prestige because I, I consider this kind of prestige. Um, they, they didn't write years. the prestige. It should be they noted, didn't do right? it. They, they, they did, did not. <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't. Uh, you can't blame in, them for that. Instead, they they wrote big eyes. Um, one of the probably the f- f- one or two good Tim Burton movies post two thousand. I'd say I never you saw know, it. It's all right. I neither. Um, I, remember. I think that then, speaks volumes for that one. And people are like, nah, I never saw it. <laughs> it's, it is true. It is like, I, I watched it and I was like, oh, it's better than, you know, what is that? That fucking dark shadows. Or, yeah. Or like, what was the one that they did? Alice in Wonderland or the yeah. two of them. Yeah. Who yeah. Shit. Uh, but uh, they also did a story by, for what I consider actually a pretty good movie. 2015's Goosebumps. It's a fun kids movie. Yeah. Um, it was good. Yeah. It's, it's a fun, fun one. Uh, and then they do uh, Craig Brewer's <laughs> Dollar Night is My Demon. <laughs> there it is. I'm not expecting that. Like, it's like as if they're waiting around to be like, all right, what other fucking true life story are we going to adapt? <laughs> but that's a great movie, though. That, I love it. Nominated for Best Picture? Yeah, it's solid. It was not. I think no, it was nominated. Was nominated. For, I don't uh, think okay. the movie was. But I, it's a screenplay, really though. Yeah, it's, it's just, I kind of want to like play like, you know, Russian roulette to see like who they're going to like, what are they going to do next? Are they going to do like, you know, an adaptation of like, um, I don't know, uh, the, the babysitters club or something like, or the, you know, the, or the boxcar children. And then they'll go back and do like, you know, they're going to oh. be doing a bridge to Terabithia and yeah. then, <laughs> and then a movie about Norman Mailer. I was going to say, they're going to, you know? <laughs> yeah, they, they're Nam Chomsky biopic yeah. is coming out. <laughs> Yeah. So followed up by Problem Child Seven. Exactly. Oh, then they go Give back to Problem Child. Problem Children. The legacy sequel. Problem Grandchildren. At this point, <laughs> I oh, can't believe they haven't rebooted Problem Child by this point. They oh, should have, like, don't you put know, that out in the ether. I'm just saying. We know Netflix is just waiting. We're good. <laughs> I'm sure it. before Netflix got slapped on the wrist for spending too much money, they were like, all right, well, cancel Problem Child reboot. Uh, oh, yeah. right. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, because we don't have Gilbert anymore. There's no point in making a Problem oh, Child true. anything without Gilbert. Yeah. I agree. 100%. Yeah. So my last bit in here is just that you can kind of tell there. it's not exactly too many cooks territory, but there are a lot of hands on this screenplay. Um, you know, three of them, obviously that's actually not that many considerably, you know, when you think about Hollywood, I mean, look at any of the Marvel movies and sometimes they have like six fucking people on the screenplay. So I guess in that sense, it's, 
Um, you know, the batting average is pretty good here, but um, 2007, eh, you know, right. it could be better. You usually want to see one name on the screenplay. Yeah, especially a horror story and an adaptation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that's that's it for me for production. I mean, it, you know, it got, it got a, you know, into theaters as a success, yada, yada, yada. But um, that's where we that are. That was a wild ride. <laughs> yeah, it was a wild ride. Wild ride. <laughs> you know. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Okay, uh, I've got some reviews here. Um, it, it got mostly positive reviews. There was no scathing, no scathing reviews. I feel like every time there's a King one, there's usually at least one like ascot-wearing asshole who's just kind of like, Stephen King is not a real writer. Um, yeah, it's so, always the person that starts the review off with like, now I don't like horror movies, yeah, exactly. so I'm not yeah. the target audience. And you're like, why um, are you here? Right. <laughs> so the Washington Post said, uh, Swedish director Mikhail Hofstrom creates a compelling ride of a movie. Every beat of the film is weighted with significance, and our mounting dread becomes almost intolerable. Uh, the New York Post called it a sharp little psychological thriller. Um, Village Voice said the horror wouldn't work without Cusack, who makes what could have been a rote acting exercise. Be tough, now angry, now defensively funny. A cathartic ritual instead. The, uh, and then there's a couple duds. Uh, the New York Daily News said a curse would be a great improvement on the wishy-washy wickedness of this movie. Uh, TV <laughs> Guide said it's an overblown campfire tale that doesn't know when to stop. To which I say, hey, stick to TV, will you? Yeah, seriously, <laughs> it's not even two hours long. Calm down, dude. <laughs> you got then, somewhere uh, you need to be? <laughs> and then the uh, AV Club, my old employers, they said, in the end, 1408 amounts to little more than radical shock therapy session for a man still finding his way after the loss of his daughter. So, yeah, a bit of a mixed Spoilers, bag. Spoilers, good lord. <laughs> I feel like uh, you've got uh, another review you want to touch on a little bit later. Um, but are you ready to pop into our next section, Mike? Yeah, I mean, on a, I mean, do we want to talk a little bit about, like, Hastrum's eye, I guess? But, I, I mean, we could do that throughout the... I feel like we could do that in, like, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, right? Like, yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah, 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 let's move on. Okay, cool. Uh, let's head over to Heroes and Villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Here on Heroes and Villains, we talk about the characters, the performances, uh, the people of this movie. So when I was watching this movie, I'll say all I remembered from my last viewing was John Cusack, Samuel Jackson. That's it. But when I was watching this uh, the other night, I was like, oh, shit. Like I'm watching the the titles come by or the, the names pop up. Tony Shalhoub. Holy shit, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. from The Wire? Holy shit. Uh, And then, uh, what's his name? Um, 
uh, or uh, Mary McCormack from Private Parts. Uh, mm. Mike and I were texting about her the other night. Uh, I think childhood crush for both of us because yep. we were both Private Parts heads. And um, yeah, so it was. It's like got this like surprisingly uh, solid supporting cast, although they're all pretty small roles. Uh, but um, yeah, the number one being, of course, the original Sweeney Todd from the original Sondheim Broadway production of Sweeney Todd, Len Carew, oh, who yeah, plays Len his Carew. dad. Yeah. Yep. Which I I still think is wild because of you know, and I'm assuming we'll get into it, 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 it later, but like there were more scenes that were cut oh, with him absolutely. in it. absolutely. But yeah. the fact that you got the original Broadway Tony Award legend in this movie for uh, 10 seconds? 10 yeah. seconds, wild yeah. It's amazing. It's pretty wild. Yeah. 10 I remember excellent my, seconds. Like, I was a theater kid, but I was always bad about knowing the big theater actors. Like, because uh, I was always more of a film guy, even when I was in theater. And so, um, but every I remember everyone telling me, they're like, did you see Len Carew in that movie? And I'm just like, who is that? And they're like, oh, he's the old man in the bathroom. I'm like, he has like no lines. He has so. a line. But he yeah. kills so, uh, it. He just but, kills yeah, it. Yeah, but um, <laughs> so yeah, let's talk. Cusack, I, I think Cusack's an interesting figure. Uh, I think we can just openly say we've tried to get him on this podcast and he is, uh, let's just say, not interested. Uh, <laughs> so he's a little too busy yelling about Donald Trump on Twitter. So, uh, but pride I of wish we could get him though because, out here, right? wait, what's that? He's the pride of Will Met, right? He's from, he's from Illinois. He's from the oh. area of the Cusacks, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, he's I believe. Evanston boy. No, he's yeah, an Evanston he does boy. live here. Yeah. Uh, suburbs. Yeah, so he should, he should stop by our fucking film festival and, and talk about 1408 when he's here, you know? It's a fucking train ride, dude. Well, we are showing 1408 at our film festival this September. You should uh, come to the music box and that would be great. But yeah, and but we tried to get John Cusack to come and he said no thanks. So anyways, though, but he's in Stand By Me as well. He plays uh, Gordy's older brother and he's also in 1408. And is there any other Cusack sting, uh, King? Yeah, Cell, which we'll talk about Cell, uh, that's next it. year, I guess. Yeah, probably next year. Yeah, because that's also uh, Jackson's in that too. Yeah, right. that's true. It was a little reunion. There was like the, mm-hmm. you know, that was their big hook of the movie. And then, um, yeah, well, yeah, we'll get to it. Then they <laughs> forgot movie. to make a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think Owen might be in there. They were just yeah. happy to have them in yeah. the film. Yeah, they're exactly, like, you know, John, yeah. we, we just we just love having you here. Um, you know, here's some ball game tickets, and then I hope you enjoy the show. But yeah, I love uh, the idea that like the pitch was like, all right, John, you killed it in 1408. We want you to do another Sting, uh, a King adaptation, and he's just like, oh, what's it gonna be? Are you guys doing like, uh, are you guys doing like Misery? Are you rebuilding? He's like, nah, did you read Cell? <laughs> and he's just like, ah, uh, he's how like, much yeah. are you paying me for this? Is there any, Sam uh, Jackson's gonna be in it. Oh, good. Okay, okay, <laughs> all right. We'll have Which fun. is exactly how they got him to sign right. on, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this... I I actually have some quotes uh, from Cusack. I found this interview he did um, when he was promoting the movie, and he, he very much says that he is um, – that he is a big King fan. Like he talked about that in the interview. He says that he, he loves the way King builds characters. And around that time, that was when King was still kind of getting a lot of shit. Uh, you know, I feel like that, that has very much changed now where I think uh, all the people who grew up on him are now the, now the critics. And so they have an appreciation for him that all the people who, you know, didn't, uh, didn't back in the day. And I think that, that sort of attitude extended even into uh, when 1408 came out because Cusack very much does say, he goes, I feel like King doesn't get enough credit for being a really great writer, but he also tells this fun little anecdote about um, seeing the shining for the first time. He goes, and he, yeah, and he actually did stay, um, well, I'll just read it. He said, I actually stayed in the old 
Uh, and then he goes, he goes, actually, I do have an anecdote, which I never do. So I'm going to tell you, I did a movie in upstate <laughs> New York and there was this very scary old hotel. And I found that uh, it was based, it was what Stephen King based The Shining on. It was this big hotel and it was supposed to be haunted. And we were staying out there and walking back at night after one too many cocktails. And it was a little frightening there. And I can't remember the name, but it was based on The Shining and it was a very scary place. And then he paused and he said, not a very good anecdote. But then he, uh, <laughs> but then he, um, also not even sure if it's right, John. It's, right. The, the, it's like, based on the Stanley New Hotel York? in Colorado. Is so. that an no, anecdote? No, was, even? <laughs> no I, isn't the Stanley though just where they filmed it? That's not like what it was based on, right? No, he was. I, that's where Hugh King was at, where he wrote it. He, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, he had the, okay. That's where he had the. That's where he had the hose dream. Okay, well then, Kusak <laughs> fucked up, and yeah, we need well. to get him on the pod to confront him about. Well, maybe it. he was telling the antidote <laughs> when he was tweeting about you know the the you know the corporatization of America <laughs> or you know something like that. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, yeah, I, I was looking for that anecdote too, there, man. But <laughs> I, I just, wasn't fine. So then, it. but he also talks about seeing The Shining when he was uh, when he was young. He says. Um, my parents took us to Boston, Nantucket, right? It was 1978 to visit some cousins. That was about, or then he says that was about 1979 or 80 and the shining had come out and it was already sort of a classic. It was in all the revival houses. And I snuck into the theater around six o'clock because it was an R movie. And I had to walk back to this cottage where we were staying. And when I got out, it was night and it was a pretty winding road with lamps. And then there's question marks. I don't know why. Uh, and stuff. <laughs> That was the scariest walk home I've ever taken after a movie. I saw The Shining when I was about 12 years old, and that freaked me out. And then he goes, I saw Jack Nicholson around the corner in every bush. That was my first entry into Stephen King. Then I saw Carrie as I got older. He says, read The Stand in about one sitting for a whole night. I couldn't put it bullshit. down. And I'm like, bullshit. I called <laughs> massive bullshit on that. God damn it. So Not says, even on a friggin' bus ride. I know. Not so much anecdotes as just. Lie. He's just making shit up. You no, know, maybe <laughs> he's maybe he's like Goodwill Hunting, where he just like sits there in a fucking night and just you know knocks out like three books or something like that. You know, right, right. Maybe he's I don't even think it. Goodwill Hunting would have finished the stand. I don't in think one so either. <laughs> He'd be like, uh, he you says, know, uh, let me go back. Goodwill Hunting can't read. He can just do math. He just good at math. Just good at math. He says, little, uh, I, I think he'd uh, probably be able to knock out like book one though of the stand. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe that's what he means. I'll yeah. give him that. Uh, he said, I think he's very underrated as a writer. Also, his sense of character. He writes terrific characters. Somebody told me he uses a lot of pop culture references. He doesn't say the man poured the detergent into the laundry. He says he poured the tide into the laundry. Everyone sort of dismisses him as not the literary talent he is because he's so pop culture. But I think he's pretty damn good. So he's got that. Uh, Samuel Jackson, on the other hand. Um, <laughs> he's the, like, one of the gr biggest writers in history. And John Keyes is like, you know, a lot of people don't really appreciate Stephen King. Like, yeah. No, I I everyone in some way does. Yes. Uh, Sam Jackson, on the other hand, when they were talking about Stephen King adaptations, he randomly brings up the movie Duel. Oh, cool. And everybody's like, like, you can tell, I'm just reading the text, but they're all like, they want to say, like, that's not Stephen King. <laughs> that's Steven <laughs> Spielberg. He was Spielberg but he's thinking Maximum Overdrive, Overdrive right? Yeah. yeah. Which is basically yeah. Yeah. the same. Mixed up. It, it is the same. Whatever. Yeah. It's the same. Yeah. Which was very funny to me. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> but this performance, what do we like about Cusack in this movie? Or what do we don't like about Cusack in this movie? Uh, uh, Josh, kick us off. Tell, tell us about your, your Cusack uh, love in this movie. So I, what I, I, I love that he does in this movie is how, cause he, you know, he's, he's been all over the place. Like you've seen him do comedies. You've seen him do some, some hard dramas, but he's playing, he plays the laughs for laughs. 
in in a way that's raw. Um, he's unhinged. There is a moment in the movie that I still think about as an actor when he is talking to the mini fridge mm-hmm. and inside yes. the mini fridge yeah. is Sam Jackson, and he's done he's stripped and he just loses it and trashes the mini fridge and it's so real and anyone who's ever had that like anxiety moment where you just have to break something uh Mm -hmm. every little thing that he does the noises he's making are feral and it's not in that like way in film where you see people play um uh broken or or just like uh rageful where it's 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 uh almost like music there's there's ebbs and flows it's all over the place it's static it's it's massive it's just like white noise in your head it's too loud it's too weird he blows the mic out at one point you can hear it in the audio it's it's i, I don't know i've never really seen anybody really match that level of of just unhinged rage in that moment and when yeah. he cries you're crying like he takes you on such a human journey from start to stop in that movie because when you meet him at the beginning you know he's john cusack and every and you know they treat him mike enslin's character as like this guy that people know but he hasn't done anything in a while and i thought that was really smart casting because it was john Mm -hmm. cusack and you can tell that all the actors that come up to him like the the woman that meets him at the um the bookstore with the signing you can tell that the actor is like holy shit that's john cusack and Mm -hmm. i'm acting with him and he plays it just so broken. I don't know as someone who has, you know, depression and, and has been through some of, I think the, the vibe that he gives off is very connectability. There's a lot of connectability there. Like I can really feel like what, what that's like to be like, yeah, Yeah. man, sometimes you just don't like humans. You're just jaded and tired and sad. And then to see him go from that into just blood on the wall, crazy is i i really don't know of anyone other than like nicholson that i've seen do that or or tony collette maybe in hereditary that can really mm. kind of ride that ride like he does in that in this movie yeah yeah to, to piggyback on that real quick i mean th- th- there's a moment in the movie that we were that sammy and i were pointing out last night where it's when because he's so stoic about him just not caring and like th- that's why i love about the intro so much about this which is you know primarily off the source material it's not off the source it's you know off road when it comes to the source material like a lot of this the, the framing for who mike enslin is is really just it's not really in the text you kind of have they, they kind of have to really go off road for it and they do a really well job in that part but what i love about the whole setup is that he is so stoic and so like adamant on just not believing and not caring and so pessimistic about it and when you see him the the veneer or him trying to kind of hold on to it and keep it as a veneer. And he's just in the room and it's, he sees the toilet paper unravel. And then he goes from one room to another and he's trying to figure out how someone could have gamed him. And when he realizes it's impossible, yeah, you see him slowly pouring in the terror into himself. And the rationalization is trying to, you know, keep him weighted and keep him, you know, again, like that veneer that, that, that it becomes, and then when the panic sets in, it's just, it's such a delicate dance that he does in these moments. And it's so well done. And it's, he just nails it. And I just feel like, like you were saying, Josh, like th- th- 
I just don't know that many actors that could be able to pull that off. You know, he does he does this this look in the movie, and I don't want to sound like the like that theater actor that's just like, oh, he did this gesture that just changed <laughs> how I view humans. But he does this he does this gesture when he walks <laughs> when he walks into the bathroom and he sees the toilet paper and mm-hmm. he ste- he steps back and he points at it and it's and he's like twiddling the toothpick around in his yeah. mouth uh, yeah. and i'm like yeah yeah what the fuck right mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh-huh what? and then the whole rest of that movie you're right there with him he's reacting like you would react like any human would react like this is not real this is impossible there's no way this is real please tell me this isn't real this can't be real and then it just becomes it is real why are you doing this to me mm-hmm. and it yeah. yeah it's devastating yeah, and then he has to go from that. Like, not only does he have to sort of go through all the mo- like the stages of uh, mounting horror and terror and panic, and uh, you know, go into survival mode. He also has to mourn, like, witness, oh, yeah. and mourn his dead daughter, and like actually <laughs> confront his marriage. And that to me is like. Like, that's where I'm just like, man, they really piled it on him in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I I will just say, like, this movie made me remember why I always loved John Cusack as an actor, because I haven't seen anything with him in so long. Obviously, he, you know, doesn't act much anymore. I feel, feel like the last movie I saw him in was, was what maps to the stars, the Cronenberg movie. Yeah. Like, I can't think of anything else recently. He's, he's on done. a show with, uh, what's his name from The Office? Um uh dwight um, oh it's oh utopia? rain wilson uh utopia he's on yeah. that oh right yeah i forgot about that show nowhere yeah, near so, the pathos <laughs> nowhere near the pathos yeah like, yeah but it's like i i grew up watching his movies and and this sort of reminded me of how much i enjoyed his i guess you would call it like laconic charisma like that sort of um mm-hmm. uh effortless charisma that exists and and almost like a disdainful charisma <laughs> like you get the vibe that this guy would not want to hang out with you which makes you want to hang out with him more um mm-hmm. or at least that's kind of how i've always viewed john cusack was was kind of normie cool and uh <laughs> norm and I, cool i love yeah that. like yeah norm cool and i dig that i've i've i i very much enjoy that and so i don't know this movie reminded me and i when i was reading 1408 the the story i was like man that was good casting like i feel like uh, he really does embody this particular type of guy who's a little bit defeated, but is thrust into sort of, uh, you know, a guy who has sort of given up believing in anything and is thrust into a situation where he has to believe in everything. And I think mm-hmm. that that's uh, so cool. Jen, how about you? Are you a Cusack head? I am not the biggest Cusack head. I don't really have strong feelings about him either way, although I love him in this performance. And it was funny, I was taking notes and actually forgot what podcast I was watching this for because I started taking my (laughs) psychoanalysis notes. And I was like, is he passively suicidal? And then I was like, no, 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 no. I got to do the loser club sections. Um, Because I feel like this this is a really great performance. Anytime you have like, a single actor or actress essentially carry a movie. I'm always really impressed when they can keep my interest uh, because the brunt of this movie is just him in a room, you know, which is really impressive considering everything that they're give it, they're giving him to do. Um, there's only the only time I don't really like him in this role has nothing to do with his performance. It's the conversation with him and Olin in the office. And that's just a we could probably talk about that later. I think he does a great job in that. I just don't really love the way that whole conversation is framed. Um, but, yeah, he's he's great in this role. Just seeing him kind of quietly and then loudly go nuts like you really believe that he's like really in this room and experiencing it. And I love that 
he is the focal point through all of this. Like we never see a monster all the terror. I mean, we see a couple of the ghosts run around, but it's just really briefly. So all of the terror is coming through his performance. Like he is giving us how scary this is. And I think it's really effective. I also, it's important to kind of like look at where he was in his career because I have to imagine the pitch for this film. There, you know, there's a real big sell here to any actor. That's like, all right, well, you're going to come in this movie and you know, this is a one man show. It's literally going to be you on the screen every second of this movie. Are you game? <laughs> Are you able yeah. to do it? And not only just that, but like, you know, you're going to have to beat things up. You're going to have to beat yourself up. You're going to have to be thrown into makeup. You're going to be having to grieve. You're going to be having to laugh. You're going to be having to carry this. This is a blockbuster. This isn't some thriller that we're going to throw out in this, you know, in March or September when months actually used to matter about 15 years ago for, 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 for releases. <laughs> this is a June release during an, arguably the biggest time for blockbusters to come out. Oh, that's right. And we're going to lean it on you. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is all you. And he kind of, he just runs with it. And I think a lot of that has to do with just kind of where he was at the time. I mean, uh, just to go back, which is kind of interesting because I feel like the 90s are really great for him because he's got just, you know, he's got gross point blank. You know, he kind of kicks off the, the, the 2000s with basically being John Malkovich from 99 and then High Fidelity. But after that, it's 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 very strange because you could try to you could tell he was trying to find out like what he was going to do. And like, you know, he goes from High Fidelity to America's Sweethearts, which is, a, you know, again, a blockbuster, but still in the rom-com vein, which he capitalizes on again with serendipity. And then after that, it's like he kind of does these weird thrillers, but they're all like mercurial. Like they all kind of shift around. Like, you know, he does identity. Identity. Probably, that's, the one I was thinking that's probably of. the yeah, closest yeah, yeah. comparison to this and mm-hmm. probably why they thought of him yeah. for this movie. Because again, that's another film that's like really on his shoulders yet. It's, it's an ensemble and oh, he does the same, be. but he does the same thing with like runaway jury where it's really on him as well. So I feel like he kind of knew that he could do it. But he's never really been on his own just to do it. Because even with High Fidelity, you get Jack Black in there. You know, you get like, you know, fucking Tim Robbins can come in here with an assist. This is all him. And with the exception of like, you know, Samuel Jackson popping in through the cooler or not the cooler, but um, the fucking <laughs> uh, the mini bar fridge. The mini fridge. It really right, is right. just him. And so I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that. I just don't see that as much anymore, you know, and for that to like, you know for him to be able to pull it off is astounding. And I think that's for, for me is what I, the, the biggest takeaway for me of this movie is the fact that Cusack was able to do this and it was a huge success. And I think it's kind of sad when you look afterwards that this is probably like his most successful movie. Yeah. Like it's, it's his greatest that. performance. I think yeah. like still his greatest performance. Cause he gives you everything that he has to give you in one movie and it's scary, which I think yeah. is mm-hmm. really rare amongst big name ticket actors. Like you don't normally get. Um, again, we keep I, I keep bringing up uh, Tony Collette with the uh, Hereditary, and you know we should talk about the movie forever. But like I feel <laughs> like she does the same thing. Here's another mm-hmm. big name actor who's who made their name in comedies and dramas, giving you a better performance, a bigger, fuller, richer performance than most of their movies in a horror film. And mm-hmm. I think that just elevate that that elevates the movie uh, for me, obviously, is you have this incredible actor doing it. But I think also for him, because like, oh, I get to eat this movie. 
delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't yeah. give mm-hmm. it to me. I can't get enough, right? And uh, in, and in a Hawaiian shirt, no less. I which, know. Well, yeah, <laughs> right. my, my girlfriend was like, at some point, he's like, he, she was like, he looks like Ace Ventura when his like, yeah. hair was up and everything. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. well, yeah. When he's just pushing his hair up in the air, oh, mm-hmm. it's magical. Yeah, making the making goofy. And uh, you know, and and as a you know, just like one of the things that I do love that that act, when actors do right and and know the the value in is uh, when they allow themselves to be ugly on screen because mm-hmm. he pulls a lot mm-hmm. of really ugly cry faces that I think a lot of a lot of the actors post 90s try to avoid because they don't want to look too cool. <clears throat> Robert Pattinson look too um <laughs> you know weird or too honest and they they want to keep it cool uh but no man he his his face is there's grimaces it's it's uh you know that the the wide-eyed tears coming out of his eyes he looks like he smells bad it's just it's a real human performance yeah, he really leaves it all on the court, you know. And if he didn't, I think this movie completely falls apart. Yeah, it doesn't work. Well, what's even more to that point, though, it's that because you could say, oh, well, you know, it's not just a one act play. You know, there's a lot of special effects and wizardry going on. But it's like, honestly, my biggest gripes of the movie is somewhat when it comes down to relying on those. Like, I'm more like, just give me back to Cusack. Like, I don't really yeah. need, you know, at some point, I feel like I'm too bombarded with the effects in wizardry where I actually think the strongest moments were in, were just with him. I'm like, I want to do a podcast with y'all called stop it CGI. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, Cause it takes me out of, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm a hundred years old, but every now and then when I see a horror film and there's a CGI mode, I'm like, no, no, you <laughs> yeah. don't have the money to do that with a robot. Was Rick bottom bad busy. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> just wrecks me, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and a lot of these effects are him like being hot or him being cold, <laughs> Sweating, you know, or like freezing. Right. Or like fighting with the sink. So like yeah. there are some effects that are like very kind of I agree with you, Mike, but a lot of them really depend on him reacting right. to yeah. whatever the effect is. Yeah. yeah. It, it's that it, it, I, I think it's funny that that reviewer you'd mentioned said that it's a glorified campfire tale because I'm like, yeah, and. But like exactly, like can we get more? That's okay, um, right? But it is, that's what makes this story so incredible, too. It, it is that like, and my favorite section of the movie Trick or Treat when it's uh, 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 Brian Cox fighting little uh, Pumpkinhead yeah. Man, yeah. Uh, Sam. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, Cox. it's those those classic. Um, you know, it's just it's the person in the house with the ghost that won't leave them alone. Old school, you know, old man in the old man in the mansion story. And it really is just that it's just him fighting for his sanity in this room. Uh, and that's I mean, that's the best kind of horror story because you it's the deconstruction of a person is what mm-hmm. is really scary is that, you know, you all of us can be shaved down like an onion really quickly and you get to watch that happen. And he yeah. gives you he gives you that journey, yeah. And honestly, what makes it even more con, you know powerful is the fact that you get somebody like Samuel Jackson to lead you in. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think I think it's easy now to forget just the power of Samuel Jackson just because he's in like you know they made him basically. I mean, honestly, they memed him, yeah. Well, they memed him, and then also it's all it's a testament to this movie actually that you know and just jackson in general and this proves my point and just like the mcu used him to be the 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 great orator you know for them you know it's someone that's stringing everything together and i'm watching it last night and i'm like like samuel jackson's so fucking good in this movie because like when you read the story 
Olin is so important because Olin's the one that has to set this, the table. He has to set it all down and he has to make you convinced that this room really is as dangerous as it is. And the best part about Samuel L. Jackson is that, you know, he's not only is just a, just a great speaker and great actor, but he's also the MVP of most, you know, you know, most Quentin Tarantino movies and what are Quentin Tarantino movies, but just strictly dialogue and language. And what's so great about him delivering these stories and telling you all about the framework of 1408 is that you are going to believe it because he has so much conviction. And when you have that kind of conviction, you, it, it speaks more to the horror that's out there. I mean, my, my girlfriend said it best. She said, you know, if Samuel Jackson is scared, you should be scared. That scene when he's in the elevator, right? When the, the elevator door is closing, he's like, don't do this. You're like, yeah. seriously, man. Julius Winfield's telling you not to yeah. go into that room. <laughs> what are you doing, dude? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a tough role because you're really just kind of saddle. It's an important role, but it's also tough because you don't get a lot of action. You're literally just kind of setting up the stakes. You're, you're laying out the exposition. And you are, yeah, like you said, Mike, you're setting the stage for this other character. But... He, he has such a weight and a gravitas. Like when he says that room is fucking evil or whatever, yeah. it's like, and like that, you don't get a line like that in, um, in the story because Olin is kind of a bit more buttoned up and a bit yeah. more of like, uh, I don't know he's, he's older and he's a bit more reserved, I think. And, um, I don't know, a, li- a bit more like, what's sort of looking for? Like, like, uh, fancy pants. Yeah. He's, Whereas, yeah. Like, he's he, got he like a Karloff about him in, in the story. Right. Cause he's just like, yeah. you know, the people, they never come out of the, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. and, and Sam Jackson's like, like, no like, one would buy that. Yeah. Right. Like he, he gives it to John Cusack straight. Like you're an idiot. Don't do it. I'm not telling <laughs> stop being an idiot. And then he gives him that great deal where he's just like, look, you can stay in the other room. It'll be fine on the house. Here's a $3 million bottle of scotch that I found under my oh, desk. Have that. that. Here's some cigars, tickets to a show. It's, 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 he's really, he's selling the audience on why you shouldn't go into this room. And it works. Mm-hmm. It's still, it's one of my favorite setups in horror movie history because the entire first half of that movie uh, is just people going, Hey, don't, don't go in there. That's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Don't and do here's that. an awful reason why accompanying yeah. a grizzly picture. Yeah. It's gross. It's horrible. It'll kill you. All right. You don't believe me? Fine. I'll pay you not to go in this room. Okay. That's not enough. I'm going to beg you. And then I'm going to Sam Jackson stare you down and go, yeah. you really don't want to <laughs> mm-hmm. do this. Excellent. Uh, there's a quote in an interview. The interviewer was trying to be a little bit cute. And I think it was, this was not the time to do that. And I think this is where Sam Jackson was sort of pushing against a little bit, the memes. And uh, they go, Sam, I like the part where you call it an evil fucking room. Ever want to call it an evil motherfucking room? And Sam, <laughs> Sam Jackson goes, no, it never occurred to me. No, not at all. <laughs> I love how I blunt love he it. is. He's so blunt. I feel blunt. like that guy is going to be like looking over his shoulder for the next like 10 years. I know. And then they, they like, they're like, oh, what's the scariest hotel you've ever been to? And Sam Jackson's response is, I can't remember. <laughs> Which is such a shrug off. Like, oh, God, uh-huh. I love it. It's true. But, uh, if I was no, Sam I, Jackson, I'd be like, I don't know, man, pick one. Is that really what you want to talk about? Because I feel like that's right. what's cool about Sam Jackson in interviews, where he's just like, I know what you want me to do, and yeah. I'm not going to do that. I, I love that, that that critic like saw this movie 
and saw that there's literally a scene in which a person that's at the book signing set, asked for that, that that exact question, and like Cusack literally gives the death stare, and uh, you know the joke of like, oh, I've never asked that, you know, I've never been asked been that, asked that before, right? Before, right? And then he does, it, it proceeds to ask that question anyway to Sam Jackson, right? Um, <laughs> What's he so- say, the haunted mansion, Orlando? Is the line that Cusack <laughs> says? Oh, yeah, in the that's movie. a great line. Great yeah. line. Because yeah. he's talking to the bookshop owner and he's like, Yeah, we're a bit like off the off the page, man. Like under the table. Where's the scary? Where what do I where do I go to see some real ghosts? And Cusack mm-hmm. just just doesn't even look him in the eye. He's like, Haunted Mansion, Orlando. He's <laughs> like, Yeah, fuck you, dude. Um, what do we think about some of the other supporting performances? Mary McCormack here, uh, a tough role. Yeah. Not tough. not yeah. not the most uh <laughs> thoroughly written. Jen, thoughts on this uh performance? Um, she's fine. I don't love that part of the story. Like, I would prefer that they stuck with the dad thing instead of the dying child thing. Um, but I mean, I think she she gives the good emotional sadness. You know, I I was affected by it. I just I think I'm a little more annoyed just by the presence of <laughs> the that presence character. Of it, yeah. You know, I mean, I I enjoy the the laptop conversation they have. I think that is really effective, and I kind of wish they had just left it there. You know. Vintage um, Zoom. Oh yeah. yeah, exactly. I know. Back in the day, <laughs> my wife I, was cracking up at that, and then she was like, "She was like, what? She was just sitting at her computer the moment." I know. Like, he, so he right, right, right. Her. Oh, I'm sorry. I was in the office. Everyone else is gone. <laughs> right. So, it's I like that moment now. in Scream where Sydney like calls the cops from her computer. Or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. I love. I love vintage internet. Like that <laughs> era is always. It's always so good. Mm-hmm. Um. Any other? Yeah. Uh. We also have Tony Shalhoub. Uh, the great Tony Shalhoub in a one scene wonder as he's yeah. Yep. Well, again, this is this is the situation of and, and the supporting characters really do speak to just the, the the sort of production history of just the fact that we had like, you know, three different minds that were all together trying to figure out how do I take this short story, which is not enough for a feature film and flesh it out. And they kind of, you know. To the film's credit, it does have a you know enough, enough equal distribution of the flesh, but you get these remnants back, and not and everyone kind of is left with the little remnants. Mary McCormack's left with it. Tony Shalhoub, who has a bigger role because he, he was going to be in the ending uh, apparently, but you know you see him here. He has that one fucking scene, and it's distracting. I mean, it's not to say that I mean Tony Shalhoub was a big deal then. It's not like right. this is like 1992 when he's like appearing in or 1994 when he's like appearing in a fucking X Files episode. It, this is Tony. He was in Monk. He was in Monk. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's in Wings. Yeah, right. with the also, great Stephen Weber. Also Wings. Yeah, he's also in uh, Adam's Family Values with uh, John Cusack's sister Joan. Oh yeah, because oh. he's a big well th- well. Th- <laughs> Great pull, <laughs> great pull. Well, because also he's, Barry he Sonnenfeld. He has no lines. He's just one of the sailors. Oh, yeah. that's who he is. Because yes, no, he's singing Macho Man in the bar. Yeah, he, okay, he has that's a line right. that he's singing. Because I'm like, look, I'm like yeah. now scanning through Adam's Family Values because I watch that every year for Thanksgiving, and I'm like, oh, there's Tony <laughs> Shalhoub in that love, movie. Love Values. That's a classic. One of the rare occasions of the sequel being so much better than the original one, but yeah. mm-hmm. it's unstoppably good. Still funny, it's, still really poignant in in a, in a way that movie. But that's a different podcast. I um, you, it, it, oh, out of ahead. all the supporting cast, the the best supporting cast member is Isaiah Whitlock because he nails yeah. a scene that and that's great. it. Great, it's oh, yeah. so good. He's the engineer, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I loved him. And okay, I wrote, "Is he real?" in my notes. That's what Sammy asked. I, I think I think he is real because you see him when he looks down the hallway. Like I right. feel like if you didn't mm-hmm. see him, it wouldn't be real. 
Yeah. That quick shot, though. I'm, well, that's in my that's in my cemetery section. I actually think that scene's very creepy. So, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I think it's time to move on to our next section. Well, uh, wait, wait, is... we can't skip over Len Carew, though. Okay. All well, right. Come on. If we're the, talking about casting, yeah. you've got the original uh, Sweeney Todd giant uh, baritone masterclass actor. In the and and in the deleted scenes, he actually has some really lovely moments. Although they they kind of kill the movie, they kill the vibe. So I'm glad they're not in the movie. Um, but uh, the scene where he's in the the old folks, the the like I don't know, it's a hospital room in the restroom. I think is one of the scariest scenes in the movie because it is he very looks, unnerving. He looks Cusack in the eye. He has one. He's like he's garbling to himself. He's just like, "Where's my garden? I was dead. Why am I alive again?" Because they, you get the idea that the the evil that's in fourteen oh eight brings his father back to life. Yeah, it's for it's him, fucking... and it's torturous. And he's sitting in the chair, and he's just like, "I can't smell anything. I can't taste anything." And it's it just the the lines he's saying as he's mumbling to himself still freak me out. And then he he has that moment of realization where he looks John Cusack in the face and says, as I uh, am, uh, as I was, you were, as I am, you will be. And then he yeah. smiles that at him. And it took me years to unpack that line. But it's that it's that like, AI, you're going to lose your sense of taste and smell. You're going to yeah. end up in a And it's so hard because you think about it. What if your dead dad came back to life in in the bathroom and looked you in the eye and was like, you're going to die and it's going to be horrible. There's nothing on the other side. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I just never had really to... internalized some of those oh, lines. That scene still guilt. Just... Yeah, he says well, it. Well, that was supposed says... to be the closing line originally. Yeah, they, yeah. In one of the original endings or something like that, there was because they were, I guess they were, and that just proves that they were probably going to lean more on the father angle. They were. Yeah, there was a whole scene with where he has a flashback to the two of them talking about uh, mm-hmm. him leaving and stuff like that. That is not. It's well acted and well written. It's just not. It's not the movie. It doesn't make sense. It's like a. It's too too dramatic. I have a I have a, a question though, and I want I want to throw this out based on the, the the through lines here, and I and I guess we. <laughs> Eh, I'll save it for Nightmares and Dreamscapes. I'll, uh, it's, honestly, <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So for our next section, we're going to head into Nightmares and Dreamscapes. If you think your dreams are disturbing, <laughs> imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. Okay, here in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, we discuss the things we loved and the things we struggled with. And uh, and we're also going to talk a little bit about the story as it relates to uh, the movie. The, the funny question, and we talked about this on our Everything's Eventual episode, Mike and Jen, about like, uh, how do you adapt this? Because the story is really sort of a sensory nightmare. Like after, once he gets into the room, we talk a lot about how from the the way things feel, the way things sound, the way things look, everything is distorted and everything is uh, otherworldly and uh, kind of touched by evil in that room in ways that are, like you said, Mike, you know, they, they border on Lynchian. They're, they're uh, inscrutable. And um, it exists outside the realm of our understanding, which is one of the things we love about that story. But there's once he gets in the room, there's no real story. It's just a series of things that begin happening. And I love that about the story. But I think when you're adapting something like that, it's like, okay, we need a through line. We need this character to grow, to change. So that's why we get... 
the wife storyline. That's why we get the dead child, why we get the father, and we get um, a whole arc for the character that doesn't exist in the story. Uh, Mike, why don't you, like, do which, do you think that that implementation of narrative onto a story that resists narrative, do you think it helps or hurts? I think it hurts because, I mean, when you think about just the pacing of the story itself, like this, this, it has a third act problem. Like it's a soggy third act. And I think a lot of it is because, you know, it does the fake out, which goes on way too long. But I like that it goes on long, but we can, I, 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 I like, I like that. I, I don't mind that it goes long, but then you have a long aftermath after that in the book or in the, in the hotel room. I just think it could have been shorter, curtailed a little bit. And I think the the, the bigger issue is the fact that it's like what we've been saying. This is what the question I wanted to throw out is that, you know, you have the father arc that's in there, which ultimately gets distilled down to just like a one scare, which means that they're, you know, you know, plying through its mind, through his mind. But that was an arc. And so they chiseled that down. And then you also have the, you know, the grief about his daughter which is another arc. And then you also obviously, which is intertwined with that, with his wife. It's a lot of story on a story that doesn't have that much story on there. And I think that the film would have been a little bit better if if it wasn't an hour and 45 minutes, it was maybe 80, 85 minutes. You can choose one of those arcs, you know, maybe go for the dad so it's a twofer as opposed to a threefer. Um, and you don't have to get into this sort of, um, I don't know, the complicated nuances of dealing with the, the daughter that's dying and all. I just think that, you know, I think it gets a little overcomplicated to the point where I was admittedly checking my watch a couple of times towards the end. I'm like, all right, well, all right, we're back in the fucking room. All right, well, how, how when are we going to wrap this up? And it does one of the things that I can't stand sometimes in horror movies where it's like, we're just kind of repeating some of the same elements. Like I, I, made, I was going to make the joke that like the hotel room itself is a character and that yeah. obviously most of the time it's the opposite. It, most of the time it's the person like Mike that's going to say, all right, I give up. Mm-hmm. But you could almost make the argument that the room starts getting exhausted because it's <laughs> like, it's like, all right, the kid card didn't work. Uh, just get the fuck out of here. You know, like yeah. you're, ru- you're ruining it for all of us. Like we, <laughs> we usually get these guys in five to 10 minutes when you come in the room, this motherfucker, we've thrown the dad at him, his fucking wife, all the, th- the history of the room. We almost made him throw off a ledge. That didn't work. His kid comes in. So at the point it's like, I don't know. It just feels, it just feels like a lot and it doesn't, and it, and it, which is ironic considering there isn't a lot in the story. So I don't know, that's mm-hmm. my roundabout way. And, and honestly, a lot of the, the, the motifs that builds up all of these sort of, you know, story beats and, and scares, it's a lot of surface level horror stuff where it's just like, yeah, like this works on a blockbuster level and a, and a horror movie level. But what gets me about the story is the more cerebral stuff, the things that you take with you. And I, there's not a lot in this that, that I take with us. Like, honestly, a lot of the stuff that I, I take with me is stuff that was maybe cut out. Like what we were talking about with the dad's line and everything. Like that was when they repeated again at the end to leave you with it. So that's kind of my long winded way of saying, you know, I think a lot of the essence of this short story isn't used, but I think that the beats clearly make a, you know, a serviceable solid horror movie, but you know. Yeah. Jen, how about you? Um, well, I I think because I have listened to this so many times and it exists 
in its original form as a performance because it was written to be an audio story. So that's, I think, why it feels like so much like a campfire tale. And the story plays out in real time. Like, it starts when he walks into the lobby and it ends when he leaves. Like, there's a little coda that's after the fact. But that's part of the issue, I think, that I was talking about with that um, that meeting in Olin's room is I am just so used to hearing that conversation in my head. Like I could probably even start quoting some of these lines because I've listened to it so many times. Stephen King performs it so well. And Samuel L. Jackson is just a little more menacing than I prefer my Olin to be. That said, <laughs> his performance in this, if this is what we're going to get, he knocks it out of the park. I love it. So I, I those probably seem like they don't make sense. But I, if I were to cast an Olin, it might be somebody a little more meek, like maybe Philip uh, Hoffman or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, but he would have, Philip Seymour Hoffman would fucking Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. yeah. I was going to say Philip from Big Lebowski. <laughs> well, uh, well, you know, it's a, it's a great room. <laughs> right. We all love it. We all love it. I think th- I love the fake out. And I love that... <laughs> pun intended um and i like that it goes on for so long but i'm really mad that there wasn't a second fake out like that's how i wanted the movie to end is out of his little mini quarter it starts playing that song and then it flashes back that he's back in the room Mm. you know i like the sin there's this schmaltz that enters in the third act that i don't love i would buy it with the dad and i was really into it with the dad and i i don't know i'm trying to remember how many like dead kid in horror movies things were going around a ton when this time yeah like i feel like i'm just over it at this point you know um and i'm much more interested in this relationship he has with his dad you know so i completely agree that said i love how they unpack a lot of this exposition like Mm -hmm. the uh the the, like guy at the bookstore who doesn't give a fuck that is the perfect way to introduce what kind of writer he is the like the names of his books like all of this that olin kind of unpacks in the story i love how they unpack all of that i think it's just fantastic the cross-cutting there is fucking awesome because Mm -hmm. you do have him where he does he goes to that first inn and the way that they shifted over to the book signing it it is such a great setup of the character and the setup for the movie that you then Mm -hmm. get into the next setup with olin like i i do think that that's at the point where the dance is great the dance is solid and you know it's ballet at that point yeah yeah uh, oh go ahead john well just one more thing i think i am Like, I think this is a great movie. I think it just happens to be compared to a phenomenal story. Yeah. And I don't think any movie would ever hold up to the story as I feel about it, you know? So, so for what it did with the story, I think it did a great job, you know? Josh, what do you think? How do you, how do you, uh, ripost? Oh. Ripost. Oh, my. I, I just, I just can't disagree more that the last (laughs) act is, I, I, so, um, So I, I used to work in a in a horror theater in Chicago, uh, Wild Claw, yeah. back in the day. And wow. uh, whenever I'd work on a show, I would always bring up 1408 because I'm like, it's my favorite horror movie, and here's why. And it always came down to the end of that movie because I still think mm. – so first off, I, the reason why I'm, I, I'm prefacing this is to let you know, like, all right, so this is probably a personal taste. It's kind of like – uh, I like licorice, so I will like it. If you don't like licorice, you're not going to like licorice. And so I like mm-hmm. what I love, 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 love about the end of that movie is the the last act. I I didn't see it like the the room was getting bored with them. I thought I saw it more like the the you know this is what the room does. It peels away parts of you. And so in that third act, when he's in that room where you can't get to sunlight, to me just like really it affected me. 
when the room is all broken and you can see that there's an outside, but he can't ever get to it. He keeps tripping on the wood. He keeps trying to pull back the, the beams, but he can't do it. And then the room reveals his dead daughter and she's walking on glass. It's so rude. It's so mean and vindictive. I I just, I thought it was more like the room was enjoying itself. Like it was like, let's just Mm. see how far I can push you. This is fun. I love, I love just dangling you and then just pulling you apart like a butterfly wings. And that's, that's what I got out of that, that last act. Well, the, the reveal that when it begins to count down again, Oh yeah. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Yeah. It's an incredible reveal because that is the, of all the things that he's experienced, that's, that's the worst. The worst right? That's the worst, yeah. right? Because even even Stephen King says that hell is repetition. That that's what he thinks yeah. of mm-hmm. it. So and that's but, what I love. That yeah. I do love that. That uh, yeah. the the part at the my favorite part of the movie is the last moment. Oh uh, really? And this is why I think it elevates the story because I love the story. It is it is legitimately still scary. Um, but you know, in like a lot of Stephen King stories, when you read them or you or you listen to them. That is the experience. It's designed to take your mind to a certain place in that order and and to do it as a film. I mean, I'm not going to say it doesn't work because obviously somebody out there could make it work. But I think to make like this kind of blockbuster uh, mainstream, I guess, in a way, film, you're not going to that's not a straightforward story. So if we're going to tell it as a straightforward story, we got to give the guy some background. And yeah, it's a dead kid story, whatever. But I think the way (laughs) they 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 utilize it is is it it. It's never really his memories. It's the room showing mm-hmm. him his memories. So there's a level of schmaltz to it that I think is intentional. It's almost like the room's like, oh, you were so mean to your wife. And oh, your little baby girl just wanted, believed in God. And I just thought there was a really evil voice behind those scenes. And I, I loved that. But the scene at the end, and this is where I love good, this is what I consider like really top shelf horror, is when you, the audience, get out of it. I really am not a big fan of of nihilistic horror where it ends and it's like, and they all died, the descent. Yeah. And you're like, ah, oh, fuck you. What the hell was the point of that? It's like, there's no there's no humanity there. It's done. Mm-hmm. We all die and, and no one learned anything and the monster won. And I was like, oh, great. But like, <laughs> at the end of 1408, he lives. All right. So first off, we have to talk about that because there's three endings. Uh, the yeah. only ending I think is the real ending is the theatrical release. Yeah. Uh, because it's why I love the movie. The other two endings I just don't think work. Um, but the uh, the original ending, he gets out of the room. So you, the audience, get to leave the room. And you're already traumatized because you're like, is he out of the room? I mean, at any minute, you could pull the rug. And they don't, right. which I love. And then you get to that moment where they're unpacking all of his stuff. And he pulls out his recorder and it's burnt to shit and he starts to play it and he hears his little girl's voice and then she hears it. Then his wife hears it. And the camera turns around to Cusack. He's like, it's real. And it validates Mm -hmm. it. And that's been the journey from the beginning. And he says it right at the beginning of the movie. I wish I could touch out, get a glimpse of that other side, but it isn't real. There are no ghosts. And he says it from jump. And then you believe it at the end because mm-hmm. she see, she hears it. So it's not about yeah. him experiencing it. It's about his wife validating it. And for some reason, that still haunts me. 
Um, yeah. I think it's that that it's really rare to make your audience believe that the magic that you're seeing in this film is really or really could happen. And I feel like that is an instance where it really nails it because it's like it's not about him finding out. It's about other people going, oh, I hear it, too. And I think mm-hmm. that, that that still gets me as like a, a fine uh, wine port like uh, of, of horror where I'm like, that's good stuff when when. When you can leave the movie going, oh man, that that really happened. That feels like it really went down. And yeah. um, apparently, I'm in the minority here. Well, um. <laughs> I'm kind of in. I'm kind of in the middle. I I I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And I I the thing is, I do like that ending. The more I sit with it, I was a little bit like, what? But then, because yeah. it, it doubles also as this sense of, you know, the thing that broke us up was perhaps our our refusal to truly engage with what's happening with our daughter. Right. And, Mm -hmm. uh, but now by playing this tape and is, and me sort of, that's like his way of accepting her death and the impact it had on their relationship. And by sharing it with her and the reality of it and the idea that he can coexist with those memories, uh, together, like they're sharing that together. And that means that they can move forward together. Yeah. It's got that, that Babadook kind of thing where it's like, you're not going to get rid of the horror. It's going to just live with you literally except this this happened though, except this really happened. Yeah. Cause I agree (laughs) with you on that. Like I I can't stand when it's just the fucking metaphor. It drives me nuts. No, no. Give me some concrete stuff when especially cause I love, my favorite flavor of horror is ghost stories. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and the thing I love about ghost stories is that it's the most human of the horror stories because you're mm-hmm. really just living with an echo of a life is yeah. what is what the horror of it is, is the the idea that there is something beyond what we know and that we can come back. And sometimes it's not great. Sometimes it is great. Either way, like the orphanage where it, it actually turns out to be something really good that that comes back and and helps helps our main character out. Uh, no spoilers for the orphanage, uh, but love that movie. Oh, it's classic, top five for me. Um, but what I think fourteen oh eight does with that that uh, you know to to go with what you're saying is that it grounds it. Is that it's just yeah. like no, it's it was a ghost, and then we're done. Then credits, and that that gets yeah. me. Yeah, my well, and I, oh, go ahead, Jen. Sorry. I think what I like about it, too, is that it's not like this broken man who went to a room and had a breakdown. Like, this room really preyed upon him and took everything out of his life that they could throw at him. And while I do think I would prefer it to be that he never leaves the room, I think the way they do lay it out, if like it's like Samuel L. Jackson. If they're going to go that way, I think they did a really great job. And I love that it's just like she hears it too and that's what the fuck and then it ends, you know? I also love when other people hear shit. Like it's not just, like it's not ambiguous, you know? I like, yeah, this is real. This really happened. It's really rare for, for me to like a horror film that's ambiguous. Like I, I just don't like it. I like concrete. You have to do I, it I love really it. Well. You have to really nail it, like yeah, Mandy or something. Because like, like The Shining does a fucking great job. Yeah, at, at yeah. that even though a lot of people are contentious about the ending and stuff, including sure. you know the source material author. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would say that, that it's weird because there are pieces of the alternate endings that I do like. Because I, the the problem I have with the funeral ending. You know where he dies, and then it turns it turns into a jump scare with like, which actually a pretty great jump scare. Where it is like, it's a solid scare. You know, do you want to do you want to break that yeah. down, Mike, yeah. really quick? Yeah. So basi- I don't know anything about these. Yeah. So basically, like, um, uh, you know, Mike dies in the fire, which is kind of pushing a little bit closer to the short story, and he like just maniacally is laughing in the fire, and he just dies, and then it cuts to a funeral. Um, 
gracefully cuts the funeral. It's not just like a ha, yeah, go, no. and then like, like that. So it's like a punch yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. But so it, you know, it goes to the funeral, and then Olin shows up, and he's got this box, and he tries to give it to Mary McCormack. She's like, I don't really want to take it, so fuck off. And um, so he, you know, he and Tony Shalhoub's there, so he gets a little more screen time. And <laughs> and then eventually, eventually, like Samuel Jackson's like, all right, I'm not gonna push it. Because uh, Tony Shalhoub's like, all right, dude, like, you know, you're 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 getting a little too close here, and she's obviously grieving. So he goes in his car, he opens the box, it's the tape recorder. Uh, he plays it, he listens to it, and then you know he looks into the, uh, he hears all the crazy stuff on it. Obviously, hears that it's true. He looks up in the rearview mirror. There's like a burning uh, John Cusack that's there, and he like look, looks away, and then he's gone. But he sees like the girl calling to her dad, and um, or maybe it's it's somewhere in, in, in between there, and looks over and he sees this other girl that's out there, and it's just another another dad that's there um, with the girl, but it's very similar to the voice that was on the recorder. Naturally, he drives away, and then here's the best part for me, and this is very it, it's a little too close to The Shining, so but I still love the image of it. It's just it cuts to the back to the hotel room, which is like a charred remains. And they see you see Cusack as like the the sort of translucent ghost, like smoking a cigarette on in the room and looking out the window. And then he hears his daughter, and then he turns, uh, uh, you know, he turns to go back, which means the room's still playing with him. You know, like he's a ghost, but it's still like keeping him in this like you know loop of like, oh, here's your daughter, you know, yada yada yada. Like you know, you're gonna, it, it's teasing him basically. So it's like this kind of gloomy this infinite gloomy way, which I like it at some point also, but I don't think it effectively lands. One, Olin doesn't, like the Olin in the book seems like the like type of character that would go to the funeral. This Olin with Samuel Jackson doesn't seem like the type of character that's going to go and even care about going to the funeral because there's a part yeah. also there it's like, no, some good came out of it. The hotel room closed because of it, which seems like, it's like it goes into the sort of moralizing thing too, or it's just like, All right, we don't need this. We don't need some fucking hero moment. It's a, it's a horror movie. So that in that sense, it doesn't work. The one that I do, I do think that that could work is the other one where yeah you have that one with like the shots of L.A. Or it's like the voiceover or something. right it's more right the yeah. dad leading right yeah it's 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 not necessarily more like the dad leading it's like a truncated version of yes. of that because uh, in the I guess the original reason why they did this was because the uh, King's story was ambiguous at the end so he yes. some uh, Halstrom wanted to make three different endings. Um, he got rid of the director. The director's cut ending is the one you were talking about where he's in the back of the rearview mirror. And the only reason he cut that scene is because he said the audience thought it was too much of a downer. And I'm like, oh, thank God, because I, <laughs> the, the, re- the theatrical cut's so much better. But in the other one, he dies in the fire. Um, and then it's the sound of the funeral over Los Angeles. And then it's Tony Shalhoub and Lily, the, the mother. Um, they're going through Mike's stuff. And then it's Sam. Sam goes like, "What do you?" Sam is uh, Tony Shalhoub goes back to his office. He finds the manuscript that Cusack wrote when he was in 1408, and then he reads the story. And then you hear the 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 sounds of it. And then uh, that's when you hear Len Carew's voice say that line: uh, "As I was, you are; as I am, you will be." Which is weird because you don't. There's no mention of the dad at all except that one moment in yeah. this. It's really weird, but it is so weird that it kind of works. Well, sure. I, I imagine they would have had all the scenes that he was supposed to be yeah. in. Yeah, because in the director's in cut, that's the, oh yeah, by the way, listener, the version that's on the Blu-ray, first of all, it, the uh, director's cut ending is the 
default ending, so watch responsibly. And the oh, same thing with the, when you rent it on Amazon Prime. Uh, just be careful which version you get because you're going to want to see the, the director's cut. And I caution you to just do the theatrical mm-hmm. cut because there are some cool stuff. On, I watched it on Tubi. Same night yeah, I did too. Oh, yeah. And it has the theatrical ending. Okay, it does, good. yeah. yeah. It yeah. Also, Tubi also has this really cool thing where when it does the countdown of the clock, it literally goes to commercial at the end of the countdown, mm-hmm. which is oh, that's cool. cool. That's I cool. thought yeah, that, was that was really funny. awesome. Like you could see the countdown for, because on Tubi it shows the countdown for the commercial and the countdown is literally at the same time with the clock that was on there, well, which neat. is neat. Like, I don't know. It's just, you, someone so, at Tubi was just uh, a little clever there. So good uh-huh. job. So what, I guess I'll just sum it up. Like the the thing I have issue with, I do, I struggle a little bit with some of the, um, you know, the stories that are grafted on, but what, what I think doesn't really work is when they try to bring Mary McCormack into the story yeah. via the webcam and the notion that then like spectral John Cusack, like tells her to come up to the 14th floor and everything. He's like, Oh, just, and then it's like evil, like, you know, bizarro John Cusack in the, in the webcam. Those are the moments where just like I think trying to bring her in in that way feels a little bit distracting. And yeah. then once you start bringing the cops in where there's like, oh, there's cops outside and stuff. And it's like they're in the room and you're not there. That's a great line. Mm-hmm. And it's creepy. But it, it it kind of starts to push at the logic of it all. You know what I mean? Like uh, and it, it starts to literalize the room in ways that I want to engage with it in a more abstract sense. A hundred percent. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree on that. I think that 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 whole sequence with the computer is still really like because I remember sitting in the theater going, oh, please don't like don't yeah. be the thing that pulls him out. I do like that it isn't. And I do like that. It's so strange that you're not by that point. You're not sure if he really did talk to her or not. And yeah. there's still that level of like, uh, is this really happening? Because it is really silly if it is. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I like that they didn't dwell on it, that it's just a moment there. And his face in that moment where he starts talking independently on the screen is really creepy. Yeah. Like it creeped me yeah. out a lot. I think my favorite Mary McCormick moment is when he's creeping through the vents and he looks down and he sees a scene from when the daughter was a baby and then right. she just looks up at him and it's just such like this guilt judgment, like living that the room is just kind of reached into his soul and thrown back at him. You know? Yeah. And that's the thing that I think I love the most about what they were able to do with this simple story that's more of a, an exercise, right? Because the story is supposed to be just like, it was just an exercise. Yeah, and, on, in on writing, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think that's funny that that King's like, yeah, I was just gonna, you know, fuck around a little bit and then end up writing one of his scariest yeah. short stories. <laughs> and, right? also, yeah. almost, and one of his most successful being that yeah. he's in the top five, which is fucking wild to think uh, about too. Well, because like, he said that like when he wrote it, he was doing it as an, as an exercise to show you where a character can go, but he loved it so much he just kept writing it. And uh, that's something to be said, I think, for this story, because it is it is just it's so simple. And what what is frightening is is being deconstructed and being consumed. Mm-hmm. You know, like the this, this, this story is about a guy and he's in a Venus flytrap, really. That's just like mm-hmm. slowly yeah. digesting his psyche, which is just horrifying to think about the concept of dying that way. But like um, the scenes where where people were trying to pull him out, I, I know why they're there. Uh, and I know what they're trying to do, but I just kind of tune it. I kind of like watching it. You, I just kind of go, uh, maybe that happened. Maybe that didn't. Moving on. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. It kind of smacks of like screenwriter sweat, yeah. you know, yeah, and um, which is fine. I mean, sometimes that happens, but all right. 
Uh, let's wrap it up there and head over to a creepy little place I call the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Here in the cemetery, we share what scared us, and we've touched on some of it, but I think this is a good time to zoom in on just, like, particular scares. Um, And I can kick us off, because there was a a good handful of things that freaked me out in this, but um, I do want to mention, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but the handyman scene, and... I think it's a great performance from Isaiah Whitlock uh, and and you can sort of and I like that he didn't pl- like there. It would be very easy to play comedy uh, and there is some comedy in that scene, but he doesn't overplay it like you can genuinely see that he's freaked out by uh, just being in the room. And then but for me, the real kicker is when he's gone from the doorway and then when Cusack peeks out and you just see him like turning the corner so quickly that to me freaks me out because I'm always a little bit creeped out in real life too when I just catch a glimpse of someone going around the hallway in front of me uh like if I turn a corner and somebody down the hall is also turning a corner at the same time it's a weird sort of uh synchronicity that kind of freaks me out (laughs) uh but yeah what else scared you guys the mimicking was creepy. You know, I I think the we talked a little bit about Silent Hill, the room in the short story section. I think we did. I, either way, this story Silent reminds me so Hill, much the of room. It's what a scary a game. Oh, my it is a God. scary game. It's a point of view game. So and good. I haven't thought about that in like 10 years. Well, it's done. so eerie because you literally are trapped in your apartment there. And so it's very similar to 1408. And the thing that that that's eerie about that game is just the things that happen that distort your reality um, in what's considerably, you know, what's considered to be your safe, safe space, your safe room. Um, And in here, the, the, the guy across the way mimicking every one of his moves reminded me so much of that game. And just that it doesn't really, that's like your first real knowledge notion of like, okay, you are not in reality anymore. Like something is happening. And the fact that it is someone else before he turns on the light makes it even more scary. Like if it was just him across the street, it wouldn't work for me initially. But the fact that it is another, I don't know, citizen yeah. or resident or something like that. And it, you could clearly tell by the shadow and the Hulk of it is so frightening to me. Like at yeah. that point, like I don't even know what I would do in that situation. You'd just be like, the shadow over the yeah. face is so creepy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh, how about you? What freaks you out? Um, oh my gosh, uh, so many scenes. Uh, I, I would I would love to put some of those up in my top like gold echelon of uh, of of frightening moments. I know that that you know there are so many other movies that have so many more iconic things, but the the moment where he uh i'm trying to pick one that we haven't talked about yet because i i want to i'm just like running them through because there's so many fun ones um every time the when he looks at the wall and the wall is now brick and he yeah. looks through he, when he looks so i am i'm i have i'm i have a claustrophobia i have a really hard time being in crowds i have a hard time being in in tight spaces and the scene when he looks through the um the the walleye to to look out into the hallway and it's there's just a there's nothing there it's his eye looking back at him still makes my throat close up it's really hard to handle um like when the room traps him when he opens up the curtains and there's 
brick there and he can't move uh when he's when he's like uh looks at the map and all of the the rooms are gone and it's just one room in the center of the room and it's just like you are here it it is mm-hmm. that is my hell and it still scares me when i watch it because there's so much that that the whole movie is in one set but that set becomes more it becomes tighter and they do so many cool little tricks with like at one moment you're looking at the wall going wait wasn't there a window there and they don't they don't talk about it they don't deal with it you the audience are going i swear there was a window there and then you realize oh my god the room is changing but you don't it doesn't happen all at once but i think the scariest moment for me is still the moment when he's looking through the uh the photo albums and I, I, mm-hmm. I, I still put this out here as one of my favorite moments in, in horror history and one of my favorite things I've ever seen when he's looking through the different uh, suicides and he comes across the typewriter, the guy that died, and his last words were, my brother is dead. He was eaten by wolves on the Connecticut, tur- on the Connecticut Turnpike. And for some reason, that level of madness just still freaks me out because yeah. it's such an offhanded thing that you don't really you don't really clock but it struck me when i saw that cuz i was like what what had to happen in your mind to be like the last thing i'm going to write is my brother is dead he was eaten by wolves on the connecticut turnpike so <laughs> specific that i'm like that is a real vision and in the book it's even scarier cuz he just yes. says it yeah, and then yeah. it goes. Wait, what? No, that's not real. But then he just says it again. I have such. I love madness. I love stories about madness and that level of just like like hallucinatory crazy. It just like you're talking while you're falling asleep, really resonated with me, and it still scares me to think about. Yeah, among other that. things that I want to talk about <laughs> for hours. Anyway, sorry. Oh my god, there's so I, I have so much on my list here. Like the when he first walks into the room, I love like the use of dark in the room and light in the hallway it's very like sinister you know like sinister the movie like they use light very well in that movie too um and i love the scrapbook is really cool but i love when he's walking through with the black light and like the first thing you think when you see somebody with a black light in a hotel is probably like semen but i love (laughs) well maybe you think that uh, (laughs) some of us are pure of heart some of us think murder but i love like (laughs) it's just so well thought out like when he sees a splotch of blood and then it just flashes to the body that was there it's so effective and i love that it doesn't linger on that like the scrapbook it doesn't linger on any of these photos long enough for us to really like get anything but creeped out i think it's so effective um I love like the painting is really creepy. Yeah. The Bible being empty is really creepy. But like the hammer moment, I remember screaming in the theater. That was when, when I was saying my, my buddy like, Danny, who's like six and a half feet tall, screamed like high pitched, screamed when that happened. Right. But the the one that kept that made me the most nervous, I think, is every time he leaned out the window, like that activated my fear of heights. And I was yeah. like, holy shit, he's gonna fall out the window. Oh my god. Yeah. So just like I yeah, you're the unsettled scene- the entire time. I love the ledge scene. The ledge scene when he realizes there's no window, that like made me. It's the hand. It's him hitting the wall and not finding it. You're right there with him. You're like, oh, that's not. And then he throws, when he throws the lamp out the window and he's just at that point so exhausted that he just kind of goes, hey, and throws (laughs) the lamp out the window and the lamp just kind of disappears. I remember sitting in the Mm -hmm. theater going, oh, that's not good. That's Mm -hmm. not good. The way that, that 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 Burton esque shot of the 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 ledge, 
uh, King's Dominion, uh, stretching. And that, mm-hmm. that yeah, long, yeah. long, long, long shot. It, it just, that type of shit I love. Like that's the stuff that gets me where it's like, it, it it's dream logic in a way, but it's right. also ensconced in sort of this, you know, grounded reality. And that's honestly what I got the most out of the short story. It's like, you know, I keep thinking about, there's a lot of images I keep thinking about that book, but the the one I keep always thinking about is, and I was telling Sammy about it, is like when he goes, when he first gets the door, and this is what I love about the short story is it doesn't fucking, it, it just starts immediately. He gets the door and it, and like a, and it, a f- whoop. Oh no, we lost Mike. the room. Yeah, got him. If that was intentional, that's perfect. Excellent. This is excellent. He's like, you guys come to my apartment in 15 minutes. Oh, he's back. You froze for <laughs> no. a bit there, Mike. In the best I possible got way. Well, I... Oh, this is so good. I'm so freaked out. <laughs> Nailing Whoop. it. Yep. Oh, and then it got it. him. It got him. And now it he's muted. Him. Hey. Oh. All right. Well, I was able to record all my stuff, so... Oh, I don't know. It was so cool and spooky on this end. I feel um, like we've been having errors yeah. all okay. with each one of us. This is so weird. Any other uh, any other bits of cemetery we want to talk about before we uh, head into King's Dominion? Uh, I love that we have not talked about the like what I would consider is iconic about this movie, and that is the use of the Carpenter song. We've only oh, just yeah. begun. Oh yeah, which was forever changed for me mm-hmm. anyway, because it is it is a perfect trope. And it's used so well, and it's devious, and it and it is evil when it keeps coming back. And then it, and my buddy Andrew and I, we work on a lot of shows together. We'll always do that to each other when we're like in the dressing room. I'll just we'll be like, "We've only just begun, <laughs> randomly," because the way it, it warps itself halfway through yeah. is still psychologically devastating. Because it it is it's such a like. It's like the room is needling him yeah, it's at that point. Yeah. And it's so evil and devilish that I, I just think it's unmatched. Uh, and it's the, not overused, too. No, it's perfectly you know? used every time. And mm-hmm. like it gets him to the point where he's like, when he's in that, that room we were talking about at the end with the, the, the sunlit room that he can't find the exit, and he's just throwing bits of this dead daughter's ashes yeah. at this... <laughs> At this little alarm clock, just like shut, like exhausted, like stop playing that stupid song. It's vintage. That's vintage King to me. And the, yeah, my God, still so good. Amazing. I was trying to think like, was this the first time? Well, I mean, it wasn't the first time they used like an old song to be creepy, but like this, did this kick off the trend or was this part of the trend? I was trying to remember because now at this point, you do it now. You do it. Yeah. It's old Like hat. Jordan Peele. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, or like in uh, in uh, Ready or Not when they're playing uh, Run Rabbit Run, not Run Rabbit. Mm-hmm. One, they're playing uh, that weird little song that they the family listens to. Yeah, uh, every time they play the game, I feel like that's oh, yeah. in every movie now. Yeah, yeah. The I don't know if this is the one that started it, but it's definitely the one I think about whenever anyone mentions like you know uh, that like what is like a great horror trope. I'm like my favorite is the fucking Carpenter song in 1408 because yeah. it's still it ruined that song. It like, yeah. it's like you. The first one is actually I Fall to Pieces in Dean Koontz's Phantoms, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> you first get your <laughs> Koontz talk out of our store. <laughs> uh, no, I do love that song. It's so crazy. Oh, it's so it's so well done. That and, and the other one for me that stands out is the phone melting. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Like, that like, effect it, is fucking awesome. It looks like melting flesh, and mm-hmm. it's just so gross. And like that weird voice that just keeps that that it sounds yeah the 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 concierge voice the recording voice that still scares me oh the, uh-huh. I, the idea that you're not talking to a person we, yeah yeah we we got the order we're we're sorry your sandwich is going to be late and he's just like right. but it only chooses what words to respond to cuz he's like yelling at her and she's not listening then he's like fuck you and she's like i won't tolerate that language and you're right. like ah but so you can hear me oh it's and great. like the early checkout system yeah, yeah, that's a great. Yeah, line. they say at one point, yeah. uh, "We've killed your friends. All of all your friends, friends are dead." Are dead. Uh-huh. That's so creepy. Oh, so yeah. creepy. That's when she's Ugh. counting down, which is from the story, where she's like yep. six. This is six. Yeah, five. Yeah. Which is which, five again. Doesn't make. It's all irreverent, and you're like, "What the fuck?" And it, that's it. Just adds so much more tension. I love. Yeah, it. it's it's hallucinatory, and yeah, that's the good stuff. That's the good madness right there. There's even well, little it- stuff that that gets me that that does a lot of like. It just kind of plays with your senses. Like the drapes do a lot of heavy lifting here. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. there's so many moments where he's just kind of exploring the room and the way the doors are open in the back leading to this, I think his bedroom and he's in the living room area and you see the doors and the reflection of the the drapes is so, it, just, it messes with your sight a little bit. Right. I, love it. I swear to God, when he is changing the frame or the picture frame of the boat, something moves in the back, in the other yeah. room. And There's I was a like, shadow oh, back shit. there. Oh, yeah, it's so and it, creepy. I was very like three men and a baby, like the kid, the yeah. ghost kid. <laughs> Which know? is still like, one of the scariest shit. things in the world, even if I know it's a Ted Danson <laughs> cutoff. Totally. Um. It's so scary. Um, speaking of line deliveries, though, the um, Samuel L. Jackson's like, I don't want to clean up. Up the mess yes. is so because at this point you don't really know that much about the room and just to hear that is so ugh, creepy yeah what does he say he's like frankly selfishly i yeah, just don't yeah. want to clean up the mess i just don't <laughs> want to pay for the carpet cleaning oh so real that's so real yeah at i also point oh, uh, i wanted to throw out, at what point would you like ditch the room or like me or be like all right i'm out because you it, mean, takes a, it takes a while for him to be like i'm i want to get out of here yeah Right when he does, when he gets hurt, when he starts yeah. bleeding, he's, he's like, like oh, all right. shoot, all right, I got to go. I, I really cut my hand. Mm-hmm. Like, that would have done. I wouldn't have gone into the damn room in the first place. <laughs> no. I mean, like, Fuck give me no. that whiskey. Yeah, well, we're good. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that he offers, because this is an interesting change from the story. He gives him the option to fake the whole thing. He's like, yeah. you can stay in a room, which I think is really interesting, but he just wants to, he wants to win, you know? Yeah, um, and it makes sense for him too because he doesn't really care about anything, right? And right, yeah. exactly. They even call yeah. him out on that. Yeah, um, I want to give a shout out to microfiche because anytime yes. there is microfiche in a movie, I like lose my fucking mind because I think <laughs> it's so cool. I want to uh, give a I shout out a to sh- mints on pillows. I, <laughs> yes, it did make me want a mint. Yeah. And I want to give a shout out to King's Dominion, which is our <laughs> next <laughs> section. <laughs> There's another world out there. I know there is. Nice. Here in King's Dominion, uh, here in King's Dominion, we talk about the connections to the larger King universe. Mike, you kind of chronicled some of these. Uh, do you want to break them down for us? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, overwhelmed by how many references we, you know, we have in here, and um, you know, pleasantly surprised. So. In the movie, uh, Mike Enslin says to his recorder, hotel rooms are just naturally creepy places, don't you think? I mean, how many people slept in that bed before you? How many of them were sick? How many of them were, how, how many of them were losing their minds? Well, King wrote this 
in his explanatory uh in his explanation of 1408 in everything's eventual so the fact that they put that into the screenplay pretty cool mm-hmm. um, yeah um at one point mike says stay scared and that was a phrase that was traditionally used by uh, George A. Romero, right. um, friend of yeah. friend of uh, King, and also director of Creepshow. And uh, your uh, favorite movie of 1993, The Dark Half. The Dark Half. Yeah. Which, I will um, say, Mike, when he said that, it reminded me of when you met King and said thanks for the nightmare. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, and it's funny because nice. I think... It's weird that you said because I think uh, Sammy said that and ribbed me about it uh, a little bit. But Well, it's become... It's become a mild meme in yeah. our uh, Discord. So, it's ridiculous. As it should. It's very um, good. You know, uh, what's interesting, too, the DVD stop stops playing precisely at an hour and 44.08, which is referring to the title 1408. I just oh, wait, you mean 104 minutes and eight seconds. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, so, not that. King's Dominion, but kind of a cool nod. Cool. Um, the hat says, uh, Mike's hat says, paranoia is total awareness. Um, and this is a slight nod to King's favorite quote, perfect paranoia is perfect awareness. Um this one's an obvious one. The one of the first victims is Grady, right? Mm. Yeah, The Shining. Uh, ever heard of it? Um, <laughs> we already mentioned. Uh, Josh already mentioned the fact that the brother was eaten by the wolves. The Connecticut Turnpike. That's a reference to literally the line from the book. Right. Um, this one's really weird, and I and it it kind of blew me away, and it actually makes me happy because we have this movie part of our our creep show programming. But the classical music that's playing in the elevator when they're on their way up is the, from the beginning of Father's Day, which is the first segment in Creepshow. Um, oh, they wrote the Robin Williams, Billy Crystal movie. I did too. I, yeah, yeah, I was yeah, gonna say, wow, I didn't know Stephen King wrote Father's Day. Yeah, they have Muddy Muddy <laughs> Boston's, uh, which I think appears in that Sugar movie. Sugar Ray's finest film work, I think. Yeah, that's true, that is true. Uh, the This Is Eight, We Have Killed your, All Your Friends, Your Friends Are Dead, that's from the Dark Tower books. Yep. Um, repeatedly, and then, um, what was it? The I guess the sentimental objects of the deceased, such as Katie's dress and Mike's tape recorder, they reappear reappearing in odd places. This is from IMDb trivia. They say that's from the short story, The Things They Left Behind. We haven't gotten there yet. Mm. That's from Just After Sunset. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the usage of open graves to taunt the protagonist. Uh, Oh, yeah, it, yeah, is it. And then this is kind of ridiculous. A writer being trapped in a scary place, misery. Okay, come on. <laughs> yeah, also um, there's a writer in the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, the scene, I, I, I tipped at this earlier, but Mike climbing out on the ledge uh, as a means to escape is kind of like the, the ledge, ledge, you know, yeah. which right. is a Love great night shift story. story. Um, this was really cool. The axe that the fireman uses to break down the hotel door at the end of the movie is the same axe that Jack Nicholson used in The Shining. So, oh, nice. wow. Um, the same that's cool. The, wow. Yeah. Again, look, this is IMDb trivia yeah, that I'm pulling yeah, yeah. from, but, you know, whatever. Um, and then uh, this is, I'm not even, should we even read this last one? It's so fucking stupid. Um, where's the bone-chilling horror? Show me the rivers of blood. And apparently to this, you know, nugget from IMDb trivia, they say that's a, uh, kind of a reference to The Shining, which is the, you know, the blood coming out of the, uh, oh. the elevator. It's I the only movie ever to have a river of blood. Yeah, <laughs> right? The yeah. yeah. Um, I got one. He The book he signs uh, at the book signing, he signs it to Holly. Ah. Oh. Uh, a little foreshadowing of his Holly Gibney character. Wow. And then um, I believe his, there was something, I, I, wrote, I wrote this down, but I don't remember the exact 
thing, but like, wasn't his book called The Last Walk or something? Long the Long Road Walk Home, home I think. Long yeah, Road, Long, Long Road Oh, yeah, home. that's what it was. The Long Walk Home, which made me think of uh, The Long Walk. Yeah. And uh, Road Work. The Bachman book. And, and Road, Road Work, work obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I thought those were some Room 237s there uh, for you, as we like to say. So, yeah, those were the ones I had. I'm also not the best at spotting King's Dominion, but those are some good ones. Jen, do you have any? Yeah, I got some thematic ones. I also want to give a shout out to people drowning in bowls of soup because that's mm. a fun right? little stand that, reference, yeah. which is from the story also. Yeah, um, that's in the story. Yeah. But, okay, so the, sh- the scrapbook that um, Olin gives him is very, like, the scrapbook in The Shining down to like the oh yeah the, he took his balls along with him which is from The Shining that's a very like the Connecticut Wolves line um he talks about the banality of evil at one point and there's like this whole scene in Salem's Lot where Father Callahan talks about the banality of evil like evil with a capital E and evil with a lowercase e which is kind of thematically related and then the maid that gouges her eyes out with the scissors is like frank dodd gouging his uh, his mouth out in the desert (laughs) that's a little stretch but i mean those are great (laughs) how many people stab themselves with scissors you know well like because that doesn't happen in the short story she just loses her her, you know, she goes blind and right. then regains it afterwards, right? But I don't what an upgrade to that story. It's not in the story. I know. Yeah, she just no. goes blind for a minute. Yeah, but like, yeah. no, she gouged herself in the eyes with scissors. Like, that's horrifying. Yeah. Love it. Uh, oh. Josh, did you have any? Um, I do have one and it's from a Stephen King wiki. So sorry, because I, I was, I was like, yeah, cause I want to see, I, cause I mean, I, it felt very, you know, otherworldly dark towery kind of just in general to me, just because the room was sort of this thing. But the one that I found that was really interesting is that in New York, the dolphin hotel canonically is on the corner down the street from the Dixie pig. Which was uh, a oh, that's cool. a doorway oh. Uh, oh, to Fedic in All World. Yeah, is, and Mike's favorite that. song of Susanna, right? Right. Yeah, that is true. It's a great sequence in a great book. Yeah. yeah. So, and so canonically, there. yeah, and good food. There. So canonically, it is it is down the street from an entrance from uh, the the Dark Tower series. That's cool. But that Very I got cool. because I Googled it. So it didn't, <laughs> didn't have that on the tip of my tongue. I was like, all right, well, can I show off in front of the Losers Club? Maybe I might be able to a little bit. So I found that one. All right. Let's pop on over to our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. All right, it's time to give this a ranking on a scale of bright red Pennywise clown noses, one to five, and uh, and also the MVP of the movie for you. Jen, kick us off. Um, You know, I feel like the way I've talked about this maybe reads a little more negatively than I actually feel about it. I think I'm going to give it four because I think what it does, it does very, very well. Like I was really creeped out by the story. I was not ever bored with it. Um, it just happens to be compared to one of my all-time favorite pieces of media, you know. Um, and so it, I don't think any film ever would live up to what the story in my mind is, you know. But I think the performances are great. I think it's it's really haunting. I think it resists creating a room monster in quotes, you know, which I think a lesser movie would do. Um, 
so yeah, four. And I think my MVP is is got to be John Cusack. I think he's great. Nice, Mike. Uh, you know, I said before when I you know I walked out in two thousand seven, happy to see Cusack, and and I think that's still the consensus for me. About fifteen years later, you know, it it actually made me a little wistful seeing him up there. Um, you know, because this is like we were discussing. This is probably the tail end of his uh, solo flex. You know, that uncanny ability he had of being able to kind of command the screen from beginning to end and you know it's something he did with ease with high fidelity uh and it's something he does here and you know for all the film's faults that i you know outlined for myself you know i still see this as a hell of a display for kusak's talents like you know it's it's kind of remarkable to see him keep this going even when it's at some of its most maudlin moments um so you know great job john uh as a horror film though I don't know. I mean, it certainly has its share of scares, but as I mentioned earlier, it's more surface level horror than the cerebral type affair that King puts to the pages in the short story and the stuff that really gets under my skin at the end of the, the end of the day and the beginning of the night. Uh, so uh, in that respect, I'd still like to see what could be done with the source material. If it was given to someone that's um, more Lynch than Fincher mm. in a way, because um, yeah. I do think that yeah. I think a lot of the, you know, the, I think a lot of the chamber moments in this remind me of like panic room and, um, even some of the, I don't know, like even some seven type shit. But um, anyway, I think it's effective. Uh, I think it's uh, entertaining. You know, the fat brings it down, but, it, you know, it narrowly misses feeling too lethargic. Um, but hey, it made a dent in the box office and uh, gave me a hell of a time every time I watch it. So I'll give it three and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses and maybe a little uh, 1408 promotional lighter. You know, that was like maybe on the press tour. You kind of like, you, know, nice. you look back in like 20 years later and you're like, whoa, I remember that. So uh, bottom line, you come for the king, you stay for the Kuzak. There you so. go. <laughs> nice. There you go. MVP is Kuzak, I imagine. Oh, yeah. No, it's Mary. It's going to be. Um, uh, Mary McCormack. Uh, no, the little kid that, you know, that could have. The, the, the sprite from Silent Hill or whatever yeah. they, they, thought they tossed in here. Um, no, it's Kuzak uh, for sure. It. JC. Josh. Well, I mean, as we've discussed, it's my favorite horror movie ever, so it's kind of kind of biased. Uh, so I'm already going to give it five out of five uh, bright red Pennywise the Clown noses that burst into blood and spiders. Um, <laughs> it is it is a uh, and it's a simple. I love simplicity. Uh, it, you know, when you're making horror movies, I think you need to use uh, store bought, all natural, you know, local ingredients, and I think they did that in this. They uh, they had so many great people working on it, and I don't think there was really anything that, you know, felt out of place uh, because it's a movie about having a cerebral experience. So, like, if, if it's if for me, if it got too strange, I'm like, well, yeah, he's fucking losing his mind. So that makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, it is a movie. Of, it's a horror movie that I judge all horror movies uh, against just because I'm like, I have, you know, and. and Again, it's 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 very simple. It's not like it's not going to devastate you. It's not going to change your life, but it will have moments that will stick with you forever uh, that I think are iconic. And it's not talked about enough, which I think makes it more fun. The more it's kept in this like sort of underground sort of way that I'm like, oh, yeah, dust that old DVD off and, and be scared for an evening. It's a great late night. Like, I got to watch something scary. This is I always have this one at the ready if I need my fix. Um it's not too much. It's just enough. 
Uh, and my MVP is going to be uh, Gabriel Yared, who did the music. He uh, the the score on this movie is my is one of my rider dies for atmosphere when working on something. He even uses sound effects from the movie in the movie, and I love in the in the soundtrack and in the score. And I think that's awesome. There's a whole section where it's just the sound of him trying to unlock the door is the percussive in the background. You can find <laughs> it on Spotify. It's it's doomy and gloomy. And it's marvelous. Uh, and I just think you, this is what happens when everybody in the room is making the same movie. And that's that's I think that's a testament to that. And it also helps that it's based on one of, you know, King's greatest short stories. So, yeah, I, I could gush about it all day. I will say yeah. hearing you gush oh, about it has bumped it up, I think, a little bit like you make quite the case for this movie. And it's impressive. I hate I would hate if anybody like had not seen this, heard this and went back and they're like, it wasn't even that scary. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. It, <laughs> <laughs> it's a personal favorite and it, it always will be like there are better movies, of course. And yeah, I agree. Getting like a Lynchian kind of uh, maybe like Panos Cosmatos kind of like vibe yeah. later on oh on this movie <laughs> would be amazing. And I'm 100 percent here for that because uh, I think that there's still so much you can take. Like if you really just strip it down to the bare bones of the uh, short story. Yeah, it'd be a, it'd be a hell of a trip and you can do all kinds of crazy stuff with it. So, yeah, give me another one. But. Nah, I think they just kind of nailed it. It's got that. It's just got a vintage vibe. But then again, I also like the dark half. So yeah. I do too. I like, I like the, dark the dark half. half. I think it's yeah. a good one. Yeah, great score on um, that one too. Yeah, big time. Yeah, you know, I think the um, you know, and I will, I will just add to like when we did Dreamcatcher, we brought on a filmmaker named Jillian Horvath because she loves Dreamcatcher. Yeah. You know mm-hmm. that that's like a movie she adores, and I think that has been a fun thing with some of our film episodes lately is bringing on people who love it so much because I do think it does like Jen I feel similarly in that like Mm -hmm. I think Josh's read and enthusiasm has in some ways bumped up my enjoyment of it so I'm going to give it four Brett Red Pennywise Clown Mm -hmm. Noses and I think a lot of it has to do with the simplicity like you mentioned the simplicity Josh but I think that's a virtue of this movie right um I wish more horror movies were as straightforward as this one like just haunted room, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Man in haunted room. And yeah, I think that some of the some of the sort of uh, screenwritery story aspects uh, don't always serve the horror, but by and large, I I appreciate the vibe and the sort of melodrama of of uh, of of how it pairs with the horror. And there's like kind of a grand quality to it. There's something kind of almost old fashioned about how um melodramatic and how in a good way and melodrama i say in a good way i like melodrama melodrama and so it's like uh and how operatic it, it gets at times like i love just the idea of the room flooding and freezing and on fire and it's like everything is big you know mm-hmm. and it all is accomplished in this one you know this this uh hotel room so i don't know i, I there's something and i think Cusack's performance is fantastic. I, I, this really made me remember why I love him. So, so yeah, big, big ups to 1408. It was a really fun revisit and I love the story too. So yeah, four for me and my MVP, I usually try to be cheeky, but uh, I'm going to say John Cusack. So, uh, cause he's, cause he's great. He's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, Josh, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. This has been an absolute riot. Uh, tell people where they can find you. Uh, you can find me on, uh, if you're in Chicago, you can come see me uh, at Wright Club, which is the third Tuesday of every month. We're taking a hiatus until the fall, but come on by. Uh, we, we've been touring all over. It used to be at the hideout, but just find us at rightclubnation.com. 
and then if you want to see my alter ego, Chad the Bird, I'm there every Saturday at the Green Mill at 3 p.m. in Chicago. But find me on TikTok. Just Google Chad the Bird. You'll find him. Uh, and if you find a, a, a an immaculately bearded preacher, that's not me. Um, you want to find <laughs> a pink bird puppet uh, screaming about the news, uh, which you can find on YouTube and, and TikTok and Instagram. Uh, but yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Nice. What's up on uh, psychoanalysis, Jen? Um, well, I mentioned Phantoms. That should be out probably by the time this episode drops. Can't wait. Um, I know. It, it was a really fun episode. And then uh, coming up, we have a comfort horror episode on 2005's House of Wax. Ooh, so Love get, that movie. Me yeah. too. I know. I'm going to be talking about Jared Padalecki. And then um, <laughs> our next topic is going to be um, toxic fandom. And I'm not sure if we've picked both movies yet, but the first one is going to be Misery. So nice. I'm excited to talk about that one. So yeah. And we just dropped our 100th episode. So Hey, you know. congratulations. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah. It was on Mike, what's discomfort. up on Halloweenies? Oh. No, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Cut you off, Jen. <laughs> Mike, it's what's cool. up on Halloweenies? Uh well, we are gonna be talking Ash versus Evil Dead to round us out this month. And then oh my god. Uh because, you know, the state of things, I guess, we never really know when the fuck movies are coming out anymore. So um our build up to this new evil dead movie is still TBD <laughs> because we never plans. know when the, uh, yeah, just, you just never know what's going to come out. So uh, either way, I guess next month we're going to talk about evil dead and then hopefully we'll the 2013 evil dead. And then hopefully um, in September, you know, <laughs> we'll be able to talk about the new evil dead movie, but who the fuck knows if it's going to come out because <laughs> again, we live in an era where movies just drop at the, you know, whenever they do and mm. which is exciting. I think, don't get me wrong. I think it's exciting. It takes me back to a time when it was mystery and you'd be like, wow, look at this poster Jurassic park. And then you, the movie comes out and then you're like, wow, that was awesome. Versus, Oh, this movie was announced. I know who's casted in it. I know where they filmed. Oh, someone broke their leg. I know that. Now I know this. And it's, you know, so I like the mystery, but planning a podcast, it makes it hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what's more imp important to all of this is we do know what we're going to be doing at Losers Club. So Randall, what, what are we going to be doing in the next couple of months? Well, our next book is from a Buick 8. Oh, vroom, uh, vroom. is fantastic and underrated in my opinion so i'm very excited for that and uh and then uh we're gonna be heading into our dark tower coverage this fall we're basically you know because we do things chronologically and he released five six and seven in chronological order so we're gonna be doing wolves of the Kala, song of Susanna, and the dark tower that's gonna kind of make up the rest of the year and we're also gonna be hosting if you're in the chicago area uh a a, a creep show themed film festival 1408 will be shown along yeah. with a, a shining and doctor sleep double feature and lots of other very very exciting things and we're gonna be doing a nice. live recording so uh come see us for that um anything else i'm missing mike no i think that's it oh yeah I mean, we'll be covering fairy tale but <laughs> you'll have to go uh, to the barons to to find that <laughs> one so uh you know that's right but, yeah Okay, cool. Awesome. This was so fun. Mm -hmm. uh, let's sign off with a long days and a pleasant, pleasant night. night. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat.
we've only just Us. begun. <laughs> this is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.